Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, DC area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S. with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who was nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one-hour sessions and follow-up six-months progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides ProScript Perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the iconic journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, Co-Enterprise's mission is to provide, motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. Welcome to another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. My guest for today's show is Catherine Buell, who leads the Housing Equity Fund for Amazon, which has obviously built their HQ2 or building their HQ2 in Arlington, Virginia. That Housing Equity Fund is invested in the Seattle, Washington markets, Nashville, Tennessee, and here in the Washington, DC area. This was basically her creation when she joined Amazon in 2018. So she grew up in Montgomery County, Maryland, and attended Spelman College in Atlanta, undergrad, and then got her law degree at Georgetown University, coming back to Washington. From there, she joined Patton Boggs Law Firm and learned the corporate law, corporate finance arena with, uh, with them in primarily in the Middle East, learning large private equity fund work with the sovereign, sovereign wealth funds, investing in deals around the world, 
She did very large transactions, so she understands corporate law. She describes the scope of what she did there was pretty dramatic and very hard work she put in and learned a lot there. But she had the bug of community development and came back to Washington and got hired by the D.C. government to run the St. E's redevelopment, St. Elizabeth's campus. And that was a major change in, in her whole perspective. And she learned quite a bit there, she said. But what she understood then is the community impact and what hard work can get done to help inspire growth in, a, in, that, in that market. And she had three projects she got accomplished, which she talks about. Then she was recruited by Atlanta's housing authority to come there and join them as a COO and then eventually became the CEO and the head of it and accomplished several major goals there. But she wanted to come back to Washington, and she came back and started with the Greater Washington Partnership in the community development area and focused primarily on what can she do and try to help the housing affordability effort. Was then recruited by Amazon while there. And the rest is history is what she's done there. She's created, as I said, a $2 billion fund. They are invested over half of that now in several thousand units here and in the other two markets. And her goal is to get to the 20,000 units and they're on on track to do it. So without further ado, please listen to my wide ranging conversation with Catherine Buell. Welcome, Catherine Buell. I've overviewed your background to the and the introduction, so no no need to go into details. So you joined Amazon in 2020 as the head of community development, I understand. I did. Amazon in the community and and subsequently were appointed to 2020 in 2021 to be director of the Housing Equity Fund for Amazon. Correct. Perhaps discuss at a high level your current role and the scope of your funds initiative and then we can dig in a bit later, dig into a bit later in our conversation, and I'll talk about your background after this. Wonderful. Well, I am so honored to be here, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me. So I'm Catherine Buell, Director for Amazon's Housing Equity Fund, and our Housing Equity Fund is our two-plus billion dollar commitment to create or preserve 20,000 affordable housing units in three of our hometown communities. We're operating in the Puget Sound in the Seattle, Washington area, which of course is our original headquarters. We moved into the Arlington, Virginia area and in Washington, D.C. in the DMV region, which is our HQ2. And then finally, Nashville, Tennessee, which is our operations headquarters. That's great. So before we dig any further, please tell us about your origins, youth, and parental interviews. Yes. So I am, I consider myself the daughter of a government bureaucrat. My mother worked for HUD for close to 40 years. I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, in one of the, actually the first planned, one of the first planned communities close to Burnsville, Maryland, way out in Silver Spring, where there historically was a lot of farmland. I grew up next to a farm near a peach orchard in a very quaint neighborhood, a really safe neighborhood. I didn't have a lot of sidewalks, a lot of single family housing, but a great place to grow up. It was a diverse community. I went to Burtonsville Elementary School, came closer into Silver Spring to go to elementary school at Piney Branch. That mm-hmm. was my first experience actually in an all-black environment. Burtonsville was not an all-black environment. I was probably one of three students in my really? first, second, or third grade class mm-hmm. in Burtonsville. 
and then returned and went to Bridge Cheney Middle School just as they were building Bridge Cheney Middle School. And I got to be a walker and walked to school, which is great, and got really active. I was Peter Pan in the eighth grade musical, always curious. And then went to Paint Branch and ended Paint up Branch becoming a, okay. yeah, a pom-pom oh, cool. and active in the band and just found the experience of Paint Branch to be really enriching because you could get active in so many different organizations. Mm-hmm. So what did your your parents do? Your mom was at HUD. Yes. So. My mother was at HUD and my father was an engineer. Oh, really? And and he he moved in and out of fields. And by the time he passed away, he passed away when I was 10. He oh. owned his own business. And he was really trying to get his business off the ground. But my mother was a steady anchor. She worked for HUD for a long time. She would wake up early in the morning and take the commuter bus from down Route 29 down to Silver Spring Metro Station in Tahut. It would take her an hour and a half to get each way. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they provided a very stable environment to grow up in. Both of them were children. They had four siblings. So they were, they'd both come from big families and established a relatively small family. I have two half sisters and I have one full brother. I have 20 nieces and nephews. So we have a pretty big family. family. Were they from Maryland as well? You're your parents? They were not, actually. My mother's family is from a town called Ahoski, North Carolina. It's a Witten Triangle area in North Carolina near Elizabeth City. Mm-hmm. And I mention that because that goes a lot into my family history. I'm most familiar with my mother's side of the family and, and the issues that they faced there in Witten Triangle. It was a diverse place. There was a lot of interracial marriages. Um, hmm. Not all of the African-Americans were slaves. So my my grandparents, my great-grandparents were actually landowners. They owned a tobacco farm in Ahoski, North Carolina. Flipping over to my grandmother on my father's side, she lived in Camden, New Jersey. Oh, She was a a cleaning woman for a family who owned an office supply store. Her son actually ended up going to work for them. They were a very good family. Not what you would see on TV or imagine on TV. She she really ended up becoming a, a member of the family, but a very strong entertainer, very dedicated to the church. She loved music, which is part of where my love of music grew and mm. was really good at playing the piano. But at the time, Camden, when I was growing up, Camden, New Jersey, which went through a rough patch, I saw the elegant side of Camden and the fun side of Camden, where people would entertain in their homes and really enjoy each other. And we, we didn't worry about all of the crime that really started to pick up in the 1990s in that area. So my family was from two totally different sides of the world, one from New Jersey and one from, actually, my mother's from Connecticut by way of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. She grew up in Hartford. Mm-hmm. Cool. So any sto- other stories about youth influences to you during while you were growing up at all? Anything, yeah. anything interesting? One of the biggest influences for me was actually Jack and Jill. It's one of the things I rarely talk about. Jack and Jill is an organization for African-American mothers. It's seen as a relatively small inner circle, if you will, but an opportunity for young African-Americans to get exposure to different activities. And a lot of Jack and Jill moms actually live in areas where there are not a lot, there's not a lot of diversity. So it's an opportunity for their kids to meet African-Americans who are in similar positions. I actually grew up in the Potomac Valley chapter. I was from Silver Spring, Maryland, Mm -hmm. um, but spent a lot of times with the families in Potomac, Maryland, and so got a lot of exposure to doctors and lawyers and dentists and people outside of my area. And in college, I became my chapter's vice president, and then I later became the regional secretary. 
So for the Eastern region of Jack and Jill, I got to travel a lot. I would travel to New York, I would travel to Boston, and I got to meet teens and people from the Northeast Corridor who I just found to be so interesting. And then my senior year, I ended up becoming the president of the Eastern region. Wow. And my, my slogan was, Buell has the tools. <laughs> Now, did your mother plug you into this originally? She or? did. She was a Jack and Jill kid herself, actually, and ended up going to Hampton. And, and so she continued the legacy with what, me. What's the origin of it? Do you know? I actually, I, I, I should know, but I don't know the origin of Jack and Jill. It was established, I want to say, over 100, almost 100 years ago. But it's a legacy organization with a really deep history for African-American families who really it gave me an opportunity to get exposed, not just to families of different types, but also we would have all kinds of experiences. You would go to museums. I remember around the cotillion, I actually did a Lynx cotillion. We got etiquette training classes. So it really was, it was an opportunity to get exposed to all sides of life. Wow. <laughs> that sounds very eye-opening, actually. Yeah, it was. And what it allowed when I went to college, I ended up going to Spelman College. I followed my brother who went to Morehouse is I had a group of built-in friends. So not just friends who may, maybe one or two people may have come from my high school. I don't know if anybody went to Spelman off the top of my head, but I do know folks went to Morehouse. But I had a built-in group of friends who have followed me to this day. So why, why an all-girls school and why a historically black college? Yes. So that's actually a great question. I so wanted to go to NYU. And the one little known factor is if you meet my mother, she is very conservative. I am not as conservative as really? my mother. Yeah, she she was she was your a very good, I will say, government bureaucrat. She would show up one time at work, she would do her job. She was very detail-oriented and very dedicated, but relatively timid and relatively quiet. Whereas I am not like that at all. And I wanted to go to New York. I wanted to explore the big city. And she didn't think it was safe, either that or stay at home and go to Howard and hang out with my friends. And she didn't like any of those options. So she actually had our family dentist sit down with me and talk to me about where I was going to go to college. And Dr. Latta urged me to go to an HBCU. He said, you have plenty of time to go to an all-white institution Pain Branch at the time was not as diverse. And the Pom Pom Squad, there were two black girls at any time. We were lucky for one season, we had three, but really we were definitely in the minority. And he thought it was important for me to have that experience. And I went to Spelman. I went on a college visitation weekend with actually one of my Jack and Jill friends. I went mm -hmm. to go stay at her apartment. Unfortunately, she was not there. She took a long weekend to go hang out somewhere else. And I had enough friends that I could make my way. And I had such a great time. I thought it was just such a unique, different experience. So why Spelman and not any, I mean, there are other ones. There's there one are. in Baltimore as well. And, you know. Yeah. Well, my brother was at Morehouse. So oh, I have little known is. factors that I He's your older sister. brother, He's I assume. He's my older brother. Yeah. He was a senior when I was a freshman in uh, high school, and he was a senior. He was his fourth year. He did a dual degree program at Morehouse. Georgia Tech, Morehouse have an engineering program, so he went through that program. But I really wanted to stay close to family, and he provided a source of comfort, and which was really great. So you went down and hung out with him before you I even did. went? I did. Yeah. I did. And my, my freshman year, I had a group of built-in friends yeah. because I had my brother's circle. That helps. It does. Yeah, especially going, that's a long way, Atlanta from, you know, Montgomery County in some it ways. Is. It yeah. is. And, right. and I had somebody to show me the ropes. That's cool. Yeah. Well, it's interesting in, in researching Spellman and what it, it just clicked in my mind that name because 
I read the book Titan, which is about John D. Rockefeller, of course, and it's highly recommended if you haven't read it yet. Mm-hmm. It's it's a really an outstanding book. That's wonderful. And he founded or provided a lot of the capital for both Morehouse and Spellman. Absolutely. And there's a whole story about that in the book. Absolutely. Actually. Absolutely. You know, there are a lot of people, not just the Rockefellers, but others who have contributed to the life of Spellman and Morehouse and what it is now. One of the most influential programs that I participated in, actually at the urging of my brother, was becoming a Bonner Scholar. And there was a scholarship program. I'd always worked. Working was kind of my thing. I don't know why. I had always had different side jobs in high school. Oh, did you? They kept me busy and got me out in the world and went to Spelman and was looking for more activities. And essentially, Bonner Scholars were expected to go and volunteer in their community. And you got paid a small stipend, but you also got Mm -hmm. to meet other people who were community-oriented. And my freshman year, I actually set up an arts program at our local local elementary school near the, the Atlanta University campus, which is where Spelman is located. And I established the program with Keisha Knight Pulliam. She was my neighbor, Rudy from the Cosby Show. Oh, really? And I remember going in, we, we started teaching this arts. We, we made up an arts class because they didn't have arts classes in the school. And nobody knew who she was, which I thought was hilarious, but also wonderful at the same time. The students were so excited to hear what we had to say, and we could learn from them. They could learn from us. But most importantly, going through a program like that, I had to walk from the Spelman campus through the Harris Homes Projects, which was adjacent to Morehouse and Spelman. A lot of the public housing at the time was still located downtown Washington, D.C., and in close in proximity to places like the Atlanta University Center. And Dean West Elementary School, when I went there, one of the things that struck me is they didn't have doors. I had never seen an elementary school where students did not have doors in the classrooms. And so we would go in and we would teach our lessons. But some of it was also culture shock for us to realize that some of the basics that we had taken for granted in our education just were not afforded to other students. And so being able to have those experiences at Spelman, Spelman really does offer a full range of experiences depending on what your interest is, was really important for me to have early on. One question I kind of skipped and I wanted to get into, and you know, kind of maybe even earlier than this time you knew, but when did you know that you were a black woman in America, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, <laughs> if you know what I mean by that. It actually, the realization came subtly. So my mother is very fair-skinned, and if you meet her, you could assume that she's white. She's not, or she's Latino or Latina, and she's not. She's she's African-American, and I remember going to the grocery store, and we were checking out, and I remember the... This is the beginning of the experiences being different for me. I remember the clerk being really, really friendly with my mother, And then when I went to go follow her, the clerk turned to me and was like, what do you want? And I was like, so different. (laughs) So little situations like that, I started to realize, hey, there's something different here. How old were you at the time, you know? Probably six, five or six, really figuring things out. Wow. And what that meant is that I would just stay close to my friends. I had three breast friends when I grew up, one whose house is right behind mine, Mm -hmm. who's actually an attorney at Amazon. She's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) One who lived across the street, third house left. She's a veterinarian. She's also amazing. But I had a really good group of friends. And so for me, it was something I was aware of, but I wasn't over aware of it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
That's interesting. So at Spelman, it sounds like you had really some interesting experiences there. What did you major in when you were there? I did. I majored in economics. Economics, okay. It was as close to business as I could get. My minor was in Spanish. So I speak a little bit of Spanish. I studied mm-hmm. abroad in Costa Rica, but oh, cool. it was amazing and gave me some of my richest experiences. I still go back to Costa Rica regularly. Do you want to be a businesswoman? Is that what you're thinking? I did. I, and I thought that I wanted to travel. And I, I really, I either wanted to work, I always wanted to work in community development, maybe go work for like the World Bank or somebody mm-hmm. who's doing really interesting work. Why community development? Is that your mother's influence? Partially my mother's influence, but also just volunteering in the community and okay. finding that that was the most interesting work. Yeah. I did, following my brother's advice, actually get myself into a corporate internship at Capital One. I got into Inroads. Oh, cool. Inroads is a program for diverse students to be able to connect them with corporate internships to start to introduce corporate experiences. And this was when Capital One was a very new company in the Washington, D.C. area. So we actually used to have to rent cars and drive down to Richmond, if you can believe it. <laughs> so this was while you were at Spelman? This in the summertime? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Summer after my sophomore year and summer after my junior, junior year. And what I found is that I was bored to tears <laughs> working as a business analyst. And it just didn't give me any... the same life that I wanted, the same vibrancy that I had experienced being able to volunteer, make up community mm-hmm. investment mm-hmm. programs. And so I actually just stayed curious. It's one of my, one of, I think my superpowers is just trying to figure out what else is out there and started to explore. And I came across two different opportunities. The first was an opportunity through the National Urban League to work at Gillette Company. And so I worked at Gillette Company. Capital One was actually after my freshman year and, and sophomore year. I worked at Gillette Company after my junior year and ended up in their corporate communications office and working for their executive vice president. And so I was essentially mm-hmm. working on the 48th floor of the Prudential Tower with the CEO's office and just got a level of exposure to corporate executives and what their thinking was, what their priority is, and if nothing else, just familiarity mm-hmm. with them not seeing myself as totally different, but seeing how I could adapt and, and work in a corporate environment. And that made a huge difference for me. And so because... Were you the only African-American woman in that group I was not. Not at Gillette because Gillette actually, what they had done that summer is, and the woman who actually set up the program kind of inspired my my career. Okay. I believe her name was Bonnie Webb. Her first name was Bonnie. And she recruited students from Southern HBCUs to try to introduce them into the Gillette company to bring in more diverse talent. And so we lived off of the Boston Common in Suffolk University dormitory housing. I would take the tea, two mm-hmm. stops over. It, it was it was a phenomenal experience. And I met amazing people who I still keep in contact to this day. Unfortunately, none of the students stayed. <laughs> we None of us wanted to move from Southern cities to, to Boston, Boston, which is a very different environment. Yes, it is. And so also learning how you need to set up a program and how you how you need to be plugged into different communities to mm-hmm. know that it will work and that things like moving people across the country into new environments may not actually be the focus. But the fact that there was somebody in Gillette who cared enough to give me that experience, I carry that with me to this day. That's great. That's great. So then you went to law school. So tell me about that. What I did. You go from corporate real estate or business interests and all that. Law. I what, did. What was the eye-opening 
moment there. Well, I wanted to go into a, a career in policy. So after all of my corporate internships, I decided right. community development, policy work, I wanted to apply to grad school mm -hmm. in the policy field, and I decided I'm just going to apply to one law school. It, one of my best friends who actually studied abroad with me at Spelman in Costa Rica really wanted to be an attorney, so she convinced me to get my take the LSAT with her, and I went to the LSAT course, and I really liked the teacher. I really liked the concepts. They made sense to me, and I got into Georgetown. I only applied to one law school. I applied to three policy schools. And I got in actually to Syracuse, which is a very strong policy school. And I remember talking to one of their administrators and she was like, why are you going to law school? I, I was waffling with the decision. They were going to give me some money. And I said, I really think that, you know, law school will give me a lot of flexibility in my career that going to policy school won't. And I'm willing to take the risk. And that's what I decided to do was that I was going to go into law school. You must have done quite well on the LSATs because Georgetown is not easy to get into <laughs> from what I've been told. I had a really good law LSAT teacher, I will say, who yeah. went on to Harvard Law School and now right. does amazingly complex cases. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, because Georgetown is not an easy yeah. law school to get into. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah. I, I, in fact, I only applied to Spelman. I had lucked up for both college and law wow, school somehow and found myself in the right position. But before going to law school, I had two internships that really influenced just how I approached law school. The first one was working for the Georgia Law Center for the Homeless. I worked for a woman, oh. Elena Munchkin, who we are still friends to this day. She's actually really into meditation. She introduced me into meditation in my side life, which is part of my side hobby and how I show up in the world. And I ended up leaving the Georgia Law Center for the Homeless to go work at the Georgia General Assembly. And it was a relatively low pay, $50 a week internship. And I got to work 10 hours a week at the Georgia General Assembly. I got the internship through an institute at Morehouse College. And they assigned me, because of my corporate experience, to a corporate attorney who kept firing their interns. <laughs> they thought I could handle it. And so I showed up to know of none other than the office of Kasim Reed when I was about 21 years old, ready to be an intern, knowing that this gentleman had just fired a series of other interns and had one of the most professionally rich and eye-opening experiences of my life my last year at Spelman. My first week at the Georgia General Assembly, when I started working for then Representative Reed, um, the Georgia state flag was up for vote, and there was a lot of pressure on the state. Governor Barnes was the governor. There was a lot of pressure to change the, the state flag from the Confederate symbol. It had a stars and bars in it, right? It did. Yeah. And I showed up from Washington, D.C. with all my corporate experience to the Georgia State Capitol, and there are people in Confederate uniforms protesting. I was like, what world did I walk into? You literally had to walk through the protest lines to get from the state capitol back to the offices. <laughs> and I was like, well, welcome to Georgia. But I will say, just seeing how quickly things moved, Representative Reed was one of seven legislators who was recruited by Governor Barnes to be able to, to get all of the votes, to whip up all of the votes, to change the Georgia state flag. So I saw in a matter of weeks how much political sophistication could make a difference. And that summer, Representative Reed also started managing Shirley Franklin's campaign. So... I went from the Georgia General Assembly and learning about 
actually, quite frankly, how wonderful Georgia is and what a rich history it has at the Georgia General Assembly to going into working at for a mayoral campaign my after my senior year at Spelman, volunteering and trying to get Mayor Franklin elected. Wow. That's great. That's great. So you go to Georgetown Law. What did you want to focus on there? Well, I took the train overnight <laughs> before my classes started from Atlanta. I really loved my time in Atlanta. And at Georgetown, I decided that I wanted to maybe go into public interest law, but like everybody else, I got caught up in the corporate law discussion and really got attracted to corporate law firms. But one of the things at Georgetown I liked the most, I really loved my property class. I It was my first A at Georgetown, <laughs> I'm proud to say, but I love the experience. What did you like about property law? I don't know. I had Professor Ernst and I just love, it just made sense to me. I loved how he taught it and it fit together like a, a glove. I actually tried to take Professor Ginsburg's tax class. And I think two weeks in, I realized tax law is not for me, but mm -hmm. property law was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it just, it, it, it fit together very neatly. And so after my first year at Georgetown and I'm getting an internship at at a clerk at a, I'm sorry, a courthouse for Judge Urbina and got amazing writing experience. And then my second year, I got an internship at Patton Boggs. And that's when I started my corporate career. Um, I was specifically interested in Patton Boggs because of the tie to policy work. But actually, more important to me was who Patton Boggs sent out to represent the firm at the interviews at Georgetown. They sent out a woman named Florence Prelo. And Florence worked for the Carter administration. She was actually a close associate of Ron Brown and had done a lot of work on the federal policy side. She, beautiful African-American woman, very sophisticated, but really poised and, and knew, her, knew her place and was comfortable in her place in the world. And I really wanted to go to a firm that would accept me just as I was, that I didn't have to be what many women do in law careers and legal careers is show up in ways that maybe aren't authentic to them or don't really show them as a whole person. And I felt like Patton Boggs, as, as sometimes wild as it was, would accept me just as I was. And so that's where I landed as I started my career at Patton Boggs. So what did you start working on when you were there? Yeah. So Penn Bugs actually does not assign you to a practice group for your first two years. So for the first two years, I did everything. I did huh. food and drug law. I did energy work. That's cool. I did appropriations work. You cannot get outside of appropriations work. I did plenty of litigation supporting doctors. But what I fell into was our private equity practice. Patton Boggs had a, a senior partner named Kirk Wade who had come out of the Department of Treasury and approximately 20 years before I had come along. And when he joined the firm, with along with another number of other partners, they had established very close relationships and trusted relationships with some of the Middle Eastern governments, particularly UAE and Qatar, when they were just forming and they were just starting to accumulate a lot of wealth. And so they were in a position to provide some really great advisory services, legal advisory services, as they were standing up specific initiatives, including their private equity investments. Unlike the United States, which has the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, where we're able to invest in other, other countries in different countries, which does require a low return, other foreign governments are able to establish equity funds where they can go in and they can make investments into things like real estate, into other corporations yep. at scale and get a market return. And so I got to represent a number of those sovereign wealth funds 
going into either real estate or private equity transactions across the United States, South America, Asia, Europe. Um, did you ever go to the Middle East? I did. I actually got to work out of our firm's Abu Dhabi office oh, for really? some time. It was one of the best experiences I had professionally. The head of the office, Bill Nash, had he was a, a military kid. So he had traveled the world and lived sure. in the Middle East for quite some time. Just such a great leader and down-to-earth person. The group had two women, actually, two senior tax attorneys. So somehow I found myself back with the tax team, in part, who Kirk Wade had brought under to really take over his practice. So they provided a lot of education and guardrails. And Bill took a lot of time to bring together a very, just a really good group. And so I loved working in Abu Dhabi, but you also learn why things are so different and how things can get lost in translation and why clients are asking for certain things and what pressures they're under. So it was a truly eye-opening experience. Did you meet a lot of the native Abu Dhabi people there? I mean, the culture being Middle Eastern, I mean, women are treated a little differently in the Muslim culture than they, than, you know. Yeah, they are. But I, I traveled in the, I'll call it the MENA region, the Middle East, North Africa region at that point for a little bit. So I wasn't unfamiliar. After my, after I took the bar, I spent a month in Egypt really? with one of my friends who went to Morehouse, who got into the foreign service. And so I started to really love the region it. and I understood the differences in genders. I didn't find it to be demeaning at all, actually. I also, most of our clients, our in-house attorneys at the private equity funds were actually women. <laughs> and so, well, that's interesting. And so Even I at did, Adia, for instance? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they had in-house counsel who were women. A lot of the business, on the business side, it tended to be men, but they did have women in positions of authority. But also, I found that there was just a lot of respect given to women. And even though women That's were great. treated differently, it wasn't, I didn't find it to be uncomfortable at all. It was just a need to show up in a, maybe a bit of a more conservative way. The one thing I will say is as an African-American woman, woman in the Middle East, I considered myself a does not register. <laughs> I'm not African. I am. I. If you actually look at my DNA, I'm, I'm mixed <laughs> somewhere mm-hmm. between white and black. And I would show up in a business suit, in business attire, mm-hmm. and and likely in places that you wouldn't expect to see a black woman. Most people wouldn't know what country I was from. They would assume that I was South African or Canadian. They would rarely assume that I was American. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't have a British place, accent. So you weren't exactly. from England, right? Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And so it was my first time realizing that sometimes I, for a lot of people out there in the world, that maybe I just don't fit in the box and I was 100% okay with it. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Well, you had so many, it sounds like you had so many different experiences that you brought this kind of multicultural background to you. To I that, I did. to some extent. I did. Which and is I, helpful. I did. And I love to travel and I love to get to know other cultures and really understand the inner workings aside from just what you read in the news. Mm-hmm. So Pat and Boggs, how long were you there and what did you learn and what did you pick up? And yeah. It sounds like for two years you did everything. Yep. When did you just kind of narrow down and what, what on? Yeah. So it, it, it was actually around that two-year mark that I joined yep. the private equity team. And I worked for a partner, Rick Stolbeck, who I loved working for. I found that I was really good at negotiating deals. He taught me a lot around negotiation style, not always to have to go in so 
aggressively, but maybe take a step back, be a little bit more laid back, but really emphasize your point. So I was, you were mm-hmm. more than just a drafter then. You were actually doing deals. Yes. We were negotiating $100 million transactions. Okay. By the time I was in my third year, the smallest transaction I worked on was a $25 million pro bono project for Community of Hope. All of the other numbers were somewhere to the tune of 75 to 100 to $200 million. And I was the attorney, I was the associate who was expected to go through every single document. This is before we would have electronic files for everything. So I would get a, a stack of paper it was probably 500 pages, mm-hmm. and I had to go through and read every single line. I would come up with maybe 50 comments of all the business terms that had to be renegotiated, and then I'd have to negotiate, we'd go through and negotiate every single term to be T. And so really for me, what You weren't bored, me, were you? <laughs> <laughs> but I, that. I could do it. And I found it to be fun. When we would negotiate deals and opposing counsel actually liked my style and liked working with me and I liked working with them and you start to establish a rapport. That's great. Um, it's great. But I will say I still yearned for the local touch. And by the time I started at Padbox about a year in, I bought my house in Ward 8. It started to get a sense that there's a lot of activity going on here in D.C., and so I left Patton Boggs just from three years in, and I went to go work at Venable. And I went to Venable for eight months. I joined their real estate practice. I worked for a gentleman named Jerry Moore. Carl Racine was our managing partner. How about at the Robert time. Gottlieb? Did you work with Robert? Oh, of course, I worked with Robert Gottlieb and Jennifer Burton, who oh, is great. awesome. Steph Tucker. Did you see Steph? I, I only, only in passing. Only in passing. I was okay. only there briefly. Well, I interviewed and Steph. <laughs> And I got over to Venable and I love the local deals, but I, I missed the volume of work that we mm-hmm. had at Patton Boggs. Mm-hmm. And so I went back and amazingly went back just before the recession hit. And I got back to Patton Boggs and within a matter of months, the recession hits. And not only does work really slow down, but everybody is trying to figure out what does this mean now? So Got to do some policy work around where spending was. But once our client kind of caught their breath, they decided that they wanted to go do a risk assessment. So all those deals that we negotiated, we had to go back through all really? of the deals and assess what points we did not negotiate <laughs> that now we're opening up our client to risk. And that was fascinating to have to do that kind of work. I did think you have to unwind was, some deals or not? We did. We did, because there were deals where partners could continue to call capital, Mm -hmm. even though some of the original players were not either associated with the firm, operating in the same role, or the investments were not successful. So just understanding the need for guardrails in all investments and paying attention to those details Mm -hmm. came through, and the need to be very about all of the different issues that are coming up and not getting tired because mm-hmm. you've gotten through issue number 40, but you still have 10 more to go. Wow. Wow. So you're back there. And then you apparently at one point you joined the DC Historic Preservation Review Board. Talk about that experience. I why did. you Why you did that. I did. so Because you weren't in real estate before that, were you? Or were you doing real estate? I was doing real estate. So I was doing private equity and real estate deals. And then I would also support patent bugs on the real estate side. Um, And so at this point, I had done enough development agreements and leases and things of that nature that I was comfortable, even though my bread and butter was the private equity work. So HBRB was actually an interesting appointment. That kind of came out of nowhere. I 
bought my house in 2005 in Ward 8 in historic Anacostia because I thought it was pretty. It was around the time that D.C. was really coming back. All of the neighborhoods were changing and there was a lot of development slated to come into the, the Ward 8 quarter, particularly in historic Anacostia. And I thought it was a good time to buy in early and I did not know what I was getting myself into. I It really opened my eyes. I I loved my neighbors. I loved the neighborhood. It was very quiet and quiet, but I would show up at A&C meetings and just be astonished at how different they were than my corporate law firm life. But my neighbors were dealing with real issues and real issues that affected us. And so it was ranging from the fact that we didn't have a sit-down restaurant to the quality of the grocery store. The grocery store, when I moved into Historic Anacostia, when you first walked in, had 40s. And the the produce was not fresh at all. It was not something that you would want to eat. The freezers didn't work properly, so you don't know if the food was properly chilled. It, it just... It, was this before Good Hope Marketplace opened? It or? was, years before Good Hope Marketplace opened. And so I got really active. I just started... I befriended my ANC commissioner, Greta Fuller, who's still very active in the community, and... Because I could write letters, my neighbors learned that I could, I would start to write, ghost write letters to them and follow legislation and somehow got on the Fenty team's radars. He would come out to Ward 8. I would show up at different events and, and just befriended some of the folks in his camp. And they were looking for D.C. residents, particularly those east of the river, to serve on different boards and commissions. And I sent over, not expecting to be appointed, but sent over my name for two potential boards. It was either the Sports and Entertainment Commission or it was the, the Historic Preservation Review Board because I loved old buildings. And they said, you're going to be on HPRB. And so there I went. I actually got really good advice from Catherine Allen, if you if that name rings a bell. Catherine Allen ran for city council. She owns an insurance company and answer title. Um, she's at, even at the time, she was very well respected. She used to be on the insurance, insurance banking commission. I guess Disney no longer has a commission. And her advice to me was because I got on this board, I was 20 years younger than everybody on the board. It's like, what do I do with this? And she said, keep your head low and do your work. Like don't worry about anything else. Just keep your head low and do your work. And so I did that. I got on HPRB and we still have actually the same staff at the Historic Preservation Office. David Maloney was there. Steve Calcutt was there. And one of my neighbors had kept pulling, getting my attention about the fact that DC had funding allocated for a historic homeowner grant program. And there was talk about launching the historic homeowner grant program specifically in historic Anacostia and some of my more sophisticated neighbors were like, this is free money. We want to get the free money. So your job is to help us unleash this free money. And so the Historic Preservation Office started in Historic Anacostia. They opened up the grant application. Mayor Fenty came out. It was a really exciting day because we were grappling with a lot of demolition by neglect, which was a real concern. And about six months into the program, a few months into the program, we started to hear some concerns from some of the residents. Two things happened. One, the Office of Tax and Revenue wanted to tax the grants. So my neighbors who had received a $30,000 grant now received an $8,000 tax bill. And then two, because a lot of the neighbors had not had experience working with general contractors, we, we had one neighbor in particular who was sending a very aggressive email to the DC Council and could potentially implode the entire grant program because she didn't feel comfortable with her general contractor and didn't have a good relationship. And so I stepped in to help the Historic Preservation Office deal with the issues. Most of the leaders in HPO are not African-American and they're definitely not living in Ward 8. And so 
my ANC and I were able to help with the, the, the resident issue and help address her, her general contractor management concerns. But I also called Mary and Barry, who is my council member at the time. I was time. just going to ask you. I was, you. You anticipated my question. Yes. I figured you knew Mary and Barry. Yes, Mr. Barry, we have a problem. <laughs> they want to tax the grants and they're sending the neighbors tax bills. And literally within a day, he issued emergency legislation to save the, the grant program. And the Fenty people actually weren't very happy with me for making that call, but it worked. And did you ever sit down with Marion? Oh, all the time. One on one? All the time. Mr. Barry, I affectionately call him Mr. Barry. Not only was he our council member, and in one of my first early on holiday parties, he, I think I got on his radar because we actually made Marion berries. It was his favorite drink, it was Jack and Coke. So we either had Marion berries or like holiday martinis and I had special cups. And one of his staff people, Drew Hubbard at the time, <laughs> went to Morehouse, came over to my holiday party and told him what we had done <laughs> to celebrate Ward 8. And so he, we just had a, a really good, affectionate relationship. Because I was on HPRB, he definitely wanted to be my friend and I wanted to be his friend. We had very different views on historic preservation. <laughs> and the beautiful thing about Marion Barry is if you disagreed with him, he did not take issue with you. He didn't take the disagreement as a personal offense at all. He totally knew his power, but he also made himself accessible and he would reach out if he had questions. So if he had questions on a preservation issue, he would call me and I would give him my honest opinion about where I stood, but also what we could do to maybe address an issue. Yeah. He likes girls too. He does. <laughs> yes, I've heard about that. I've heard about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, anyway, there's a stories. There are so many stories about him that you could go on. Yes. Of. Oh well, I have my own stories with Mr. Barry, but most of them are really, you know, I felt like there's so many times where I would just have these like awkward <laughs> aha moments with him. One of them was actually we had a, a series of unfortunate incidents on my block, and for mm -hmm. one of them, I actually called him and had a little bit of a meltdown. And he was so good. Um, mm -hmm. He really cared about the people, but most importantly, he somehow got you to see that something was happening that you were really troubled by, but stay in the game and stay in the conversation. And that was the biggest gift that he gave to me. Well, he was loved Yes, in Washington, D.C. Yes, understandably. He would show up at, by the time I got to Saney's, he would show up at all of our events. He was the one person who totally understood what I was talking about mm -hmm. at speed with complexity. He's a very <laughs> smart man. He was. He was. He almost had a Ph.D. in chemistry. I yep. don't know if you knew that. Yeah. Very smart guy. But he had some personal problems yeah. here and there. Yeah, that's what <laughs> that's what anyway, <laughs> so you joined Demped then after I did. That. So what brought you to Demped? So I so at the time I actually I was chair of HBRB. Okay. I got appointed to by Mayor Gray to the St. Elizabeth East Advisory Committee. Herb okay. Miller was the chair of the committee. I love Herb Miller. Interviewed Herb as well. Yeah. And Herb really led the charge on trying to create a special place at St. Elizabeth. And so I spent I got to learn from what I feel like is the greatest about making your first move on a large redevelopment, something that is very visible, very bold, in your face to get everybody talking. That mm -hmm. was all Herb, the, all of the work around innovation hubs and trying to bring an anchor to the campus. That was all Herb's influence. 
And lastly, just an openness and willingness to bring in different thoughts that I don't think the district government had. And I was intrigued. I love the St. Elizabeth's redevelopment. I would go to all the master planning meetings and show up and comment on whatever the design plans were. And Faras Kamsaye was the executive director at the time. He's now at Standard Real Estate. And he was at the point where he was ready to transition out of Dempet. He'd gotten a $120 million capital fund. The master plan got approved. Zoning got approved. Like he had really set up the project well. And Herb said, Catherine, I, I was mouthing off in a meeting and talking about what we should do and how we should show up in Ward 8. And he looked at me and he said, you would be really good at in this executive director role. And I, I kind of looked at him and I was like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> And I went home and I talked to one of my mentors and she said, if you don't pursue that job, this is everything you say you want, you are going to have missed a major opportunity. And so I went on the offense and decided that I was going to lobby to try to get in the job. I was a corporate attorney. I had very little relevant experience outside of the Historic Preservation Review Board, but Victor Hoskins was willing to take a chance on me and brought me in as the executive director for St. Elizabeth's East, just as we were getting out of the master planning phase. So what did you learn in that role? Oh, boy. <laughs> what didn't I learn? First of all, no job is ever what it appears to be. Here I was. I When I joined Denpid, I just left Abu Dhabi. I had all of the, the, the wow. lifestyle benefits associated with living in Abu Dhabi, and including having drivers and, and just different different lifestyle than working for D.C. government. And I go to work for D.C. government. At the time, the office had... I four tours where the alignment was off. There's no perks. And I was like, this job is not going to be what I expected. We had an RFP out at the time and none of the developers that I knew were calling me back to show interest in the RFP. So actually one of my first acts as executive director for St. Elizabeth's East was saying, we need to take the PR hit and cancel this RFP because our first step makes no sense. And I remember going and Brian Kenner was the chief of staff at the time telling him and everybody after a while, they agreed that we moved quickly. We canceled the RFP and we restarted. Within six months of my time at HBRB, our first project was Gateway DC. If you, if for those who recall, there were preservationists who were not a fan of developing at all on St. Elizabeth's East Campus. And so my historic preservation experience really kicked in. We were able to get approval for the designs through not only DC Historic Preservation Review Board and the SHPO because St. Elizabeth is a National Historic District landmark. It's the only one in the District of Columbia of its caliber, but also go through CFA, Commission on Fine Arts, which is a federal body that oversees large-scale preservation efforts with a federal connection. And then of course the Advisory Council for Historic White House Advisory Council for Historic Preservation. So we had so many different groups, none of whom had a connection to Ward 8, to the people of Ward 8, commenting on what was best for Ward 8, but we got through it. And within nine months of my time at St. Elizabeth's, we were breaking ground on Gateway DC, which was our first major project with a lot of fanfare and with what I think is a beautifully designed, high quality space that really opened up the campus for the first time. Mm-hmm. At one point, and I did a tour there before any construction started, Microsoft, I think, was involved. Yes. That, wasn't it? Weren't they yes. at one point? 
We were hoping at the time to get a Microsoft Innovation um, mm -hmm. Center, which really was a concept that had not been very fleshed out and trying to figure out what we were going to do. There were actually three anchor tenants that we had been talking to. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that without a building for them to occupy, without a lot of that work being done, it was very, very difficult to get an anchor tenant on the campus. And so while we continued conversations with, with Microsoft was one of them and a number of other corporations, we also decided that we were going to self-invest and start to create unique places that on the campus that we otherwise couldn't get outside investors to create. So one of the first projects we did outside of Gateway DC was the RISE Demonstration Center. Hmm. to start to show what is possible on a campus like St. Elizabeth's and to open up people's minds and thinking, but also to bring in the community. So the RISE Demonstration Center was actually a two-page concept paper. It was based on the innovation strategy that the Office of Planning had done for the St. Elizabeth's campus. And the idea was that we needed a place to connect the new burgeoning tech world to the local community and that we would use an existing 1955 chapel. It was the only building on the St. Elizabeth East campus where the community could meet. So there was a lot of connection to the property. And we would take this 14,000 square foot property and we would create a really unique, innovative place that showed what you could do on a campus like St. Elizabeth with both with those historic buildings, but also including the community and bringing in some sort of modern amenity like an innovation center. We went from a concept paper to a ribbon cutting in nine months. I've never seen anything move so fast. We had, if you went in the seven months into the, our renovation project, you, all you saw was Ladder City inside because there were so many ladders, so many people working on the building at the same time. But the RISE Demonstration Center is still a beloved community asset that when I think back at it, it was probably one of the best things we did at St. Elizabeth's because it did show what was possible. That's awesome. So you were there for how long? I was there for three years, which is really, when I think back at it, amazing. It moved so fast. We mm -hmm. Within... What, nine months we were opening Gateway DC. Another nine months later, we had opened the Rise Demonstration Center. We were able to get Red Brick selected as a developer. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, luckily we had competition on our RFP, which was really important to us. And then in the end, we ended up switching on our approach to our anchor. We were going after universities and universities are not developers. Again, the, the buildings really needed to be in better condition before mm -hmm. a university was willing to step in. We'd gone after private corporations, and as you saw with the conversation with Microsoft, had not seen a lot of success. But I heard through the grapevine that there was talk when the some of the partners who actually ended up forming the Greater Washington Partnership went to go for the Olympic bid. And there was talk about the need for a 5,000-seat arena. And, and so those discussions did not go away. The Wizards were looking for a practice facility and they were looking to locate it at Shaw. But me being from, my family being from Camden, I noticed that the, the Philadelphia basketball team had actually moved their practice facility into Camden. And I was thinking, well, why can't we do that at St. Eves? Like we're mm -hmm. looking for an anchor. Right. And we could absolutely use a sports team as our anchor and it knew that it kind of knew that the convention center could play a role because they had reserves and then poked around there because of my interest in the convention center board I just mm -hmm. in my free time learned a lot about them and so I reached out to Randy Bowe who is a general counsel for monumental sports to say hey would you take a look and he came out and he he took the train he walked to the rise demonstration center mm -hmm. I showed him around and he said 
this might actually be a real possibility. And our second visit was with Ted Leonsis, and we brought out more folks from the deputy mayor's office, and it's been history ever since. That's great. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah. That was your last big initiative there? It then? was. It was. And I, about year three, we weren't building anymore. It was going to take us some time to get the entertainment and sports arena off the ground. And I felt like what I've come to do, I've done. It was an intense three years. We really did change the St. Elizabeth and the trajectory of the St. Elizabeth East Campus. Mm-hmm. The residence of St. Elizabeth was under underway and under construction. And... I got a call from Atlanta. And part of the reason I got the call from Atlanta is because when I left Patton Boggs and went to go work for DC government, I got so much slack from so many people who did not understand why I left my corporate law firm working in the Middle East to go work for DC government to run a redevelopment project in the middle of Ward 8. A lot of people really could not understand why I would take such a risk. And especially those who didn't have vision. If you'd come to St. Elizabeth when we first opened, even when we first opened Gateway DC, it's not the place that it was now. My first visit to the campus, actually you could barely get on the campus. Campus security would not allow you to get on the campus because they weren't used to having visitors there. And the fact that I was able to make something of it three years later, I'm not a, I am not a development professional. That's not my background, meaning that's not my background. I'm not a finance expert. I'm a corporate attorney who just understands regulations and also has a sense of creativity to be able to put things together in a way that's respectful to the community. And our board chair at Atlanta Housing had been a client of ours, a client of mine at Patton Boggs. I had worked on some of the work that he had done for Brand USA, another board he had sat on. I pitched him to come to St. E's. He had run a hospitality firm and we were looking for restaurateurs. And, and so when they were looking for creative people who were not in public housing, they didn't want to just transport somebody who was an industry expert, but also the industry is very small. Most people don't, they'll, they'll selectively move around to different jobs. They wanted an outside of the box thinker. And so I came in as a COO with recognizing that the CEO at some point would retire with the goal of being able to start to infuse some creativity into the Atlanta Housing Authority and the work that they were doing. So just out of blue, of the blue, they came to you. They did. They did. Wow. Yeah. And I actually had two job offers. It was a tough decision. I was either going to stay in D.C. or I was going to go down to Atlanta. And mm-hmm. after working, living and playing in the same community, my world got very small. It went international and then it got very, very small. I decided I wanted my world to be big again. And so... Atlanta, here we come. But you went to school there, so you knew the I city. Did. I did. It's not like it was a de novo situation. That's for you, right. Right? That's right. And the neighborhood there where you were going to school may be part of what you were overseeing, right? It's, it was. It, so that was actually the appeal. It was our Choice Neighborhoods grant and all the work that Atlanta Housing was doing in the Atlanta University Center that convinced mm-hmm. me to take on something like Atlanta House. But again, as in any good job, the job is never what you expect. DC, I expected to come in and from day one, negotiate new real estate deals and for that to be my, my define my three years. And I did everything. I got to negotiation on deals probably my last six months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I did everything, but I was a woman who would hand out flyers at the metro station at 7 a.m. because we were having an event. I was the person who would put together a concept paper and 
and work with our construction team to make sure it was built and that we were bringing in small local businesses. No job was too small at at St. Elizabeth's and I was able to do everything. So going to Atlanta, I was like, what a contrast from what you had. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's open ourselves up to something new. And so I started out as the COO working on a lot of the back office work for the Atlanta housing authority, but that was great for me because I got to see the, the backbones and how the housing authority really operated. So that's really your initiation to housing from a policy standpoint. Correct. Correct. Okay. So now you understand the public side of housing. You're getting there. Yep. And you negotiated enough private deals while you were at, at Patton Box. You understand what private equity and private people think. Correct. So you spent how many years down in Atlanta then? So I moved down to Atlanta. I spent just under three years in okay. Atlanta. All right. And thinking that I had plenty of time, I started out as a COO. I had overseen our IT department. Little known fact about most housing authorities, those IT departments are very important. And uh, in order for you to get paid on time, in order for your voucher to be administered, the stronger your tech team is, uh, the, the easier it is for you to work. And Atlanta Housing has a, a award-winning team. Our financial situation was actually very strong, which is comforting to go into a housing authority. And we had close to $300 million in reserves. We had an annual allocation from HUD of $200 million. Our biggest challenge was getting more households served. We, because Atlanta had demolished a lot of the traditional public housing and issued vouchers, and not all of the communities had gotten fully rebuilt, they actually did not have the same number of households that they were serving as they did in the 1990s. And so we had a lot of work to do to increase that that voucher utilization and tried creative strategies. But most importantly, unlike Washington, D.C., the housing authority operated very differently. The housing authority had around 250 staff members. All of them were at will. We had no union team members. All of our properties were privately managed. We had 11 owned buildings, but every other property was generally a mixed income, well, under 20-year-old property. Very rarely do you walk into a housing authority with that kind of housing stock with that kind of staff and team, with that kind of industry sophistication, knowledge, and reputation. And so I felt like I really lucked up to learn about the housing industry, but learn about the housing industry from the best of the best in a really well-operated agency. So why did they come to Washington to get somebody? Why, why couldn't they do it internally, <laughs> I guess is the question. Well, you know, housing authorities tend to find people from around the world and, or around the country. I shouldn't say around the world, around the country. A lot of housing authority directors move. Actually, Eugene Jones, who's running the housing authority now, when I was in Atlanta, he was running Chicago and he had run Toronto. And so it actually wasn't unusual to bring in somebody from the outside. And now they have a COO who is from Atlanta, but you really want to be able to have a balance. Somebody who mm. understands all of the technical and regulatory requirements that are mm. associated with something right. like a housing authority, because it's not a city agency. It's a state entity that is funded by the federal government with appointees mm. by, the, um, with, by the local government. And yep. so it has a very different operation model. And so you really need for housing authorities, people who are both comfortable with diverse communities and comfortable working with lower income families and people who have different needs, but also people who are well-versed in, in very highly regulated environments and making sure that all of that back office work and administrative work is done well. 
Great. So you were there for three years, and then what happened? I was. And I will just say, in my time in Atlanta, we got to do some great work. So Atlanta, the Beltline is coming back. We got to start to identify projects up and down the Beltline. We were able to start to bring back a number of our sites for redevelopment, including a site called Herndon Homes, just off of Georgia Tech. But our biggest deal is we bought the Atlanta Civic Center. I love a good deal. We bought the Atlanta Civic Center. I want to say we closed that transaction in 60 days. By the time we closed it, we could have left our negotiation (laughs) conference line on 24 hours a day because we negotiated every single point. But it allowed Atlanta housing to come back in to a new age of redevelopment, but particularly in downtown, highly visible properties, really show up as a partner. We changed the name from Atlanta Housing Authority to Atlanta Housing, be more of a partner to landlords. So what was the deal with the Civic Center? Was that a redevelopment or what, what did you do there? It was. So the Civic Center stopped being used several years ago. Only a portion of the site was occupied. Little known fact is that the Civic Center site was actually previously owned by Atlanta Housing Authority. It was part of, it was property that was previously called the, um, Gosh, I'm going to, it's, it was a historic area where during the time of urban renewal, urban renewal, there were a lot of wood frame buildings. There wasn't a lot of plumbing. There weren't some of the basic necessities that you would expect of a downtown area is essentially considered a slum. I'm going to mess up the name, but I want to say it was Milky Bottom. I forget the name of the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. but it really, it talked about the fact that it was an area of downtown where a lot of low-income families, African-American families were forced to live, but they just didn't have the same level access to amenities. And so during the time of urban renewal, bringing back the Civic Center site was really important. Both the Civic Center were built on the site as well as Georgia Power headquarters. But after the Civic Center got to the end of its useful life, Invest Atlanta wanted to redevelop the site. And we had our eye on the site specifically because this is a time of affirmatively furthering fair housing. The Obama administration, we no longer wanted to place residents on the outskirts of town. We wanted our residents to be directly downtown, near grocery stores, near public transportation. The old school style of doing affordable housing would no longer fit a city like Atlanta. And so being able to be in the ownership position on a property like the Civic Center meant that even if the entire site is not developed as affordable housing, only a portion of it, that we're now putting affordable housing right downtown in the middle of all of the action so that our residents could be part of the growth of the city. Mm -hmm. So this is proximate to the business center of the city. Correct. Okay. And really ties in, the city was growing because of the Beltline, an area called the Old Fourth Ward, Pont City Market, had really driven a lot of the development from Buckhead Eastern in the in the eastern area of Atlanta. And so there were new pockets of cool and hip areas that didn't exist previously. And mm-hmm. the Civic Center was the next area as you were moving into downtown to start to see that development. And so I expect over the next 10 years that the Civic Air Center, as well as the surrounding properties, those owned by Emory University, there's a major highway infrastructure project called the Stitch that's been discussed of really doing what we did here near Georgetown Law Center of essentially creating a tie over a freeway so that it's easier to connect different neighborhoods and not have them dissected by a, a large freeway. Cool. Very cool. So what brought you back to Washington? So I came back to Washington after leaving Atlanta Housing really to try to figure out what I wanted to do next. 
I looked at a couple of different job positions. I did not want to go back into government. I had six years in government, very intense government service, and decided that I wanted to do something totally different. And I got a call from Russ Ramsey, who was on my board when I was at St. Elizabeth, saying, hey, we just stood up this group called Greater Washington Partnership. Here you're in the market. We'd love to talk to you. And I did and decided to go over to Greater Washington Partnership to really focus on regional housing policy issues and a range of issues that they were looking at, talent, transportation, and the like. So did DCHCD try to come after you as well, or what? They Not DHCD, but a couple of other D.C. government agencies did pop up. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah. But I will say, I, I, I waffled on whether or not to go back into government service at this time. And I was intrigued by everything that I was learning at the Greater Washington Partnership, the good, bad, and the ugly, around how interested corporations are into going into issues like housing, but also where some of the, the hesitation could and most importantly, need to bring people up to speed and talk about issues like housing and some of these other social issues in a very different way. Expand on hesitation, if you would, please. Yeah. So when I started with the Greater Washington Partnership, I, I was told we're going to go into housing, which of course to me means we're going to start building buildings. And mm -hmm. what it actually meant is we were going to be working with the Urban Institute to do a regional housing assessment and really understand what the needs of the region are in terms of housing affordability and why the region was having such a, a real issue with affordable housing. The Greater Washington Partnership was one of the players who really pushed to get Amazon into this region. And so they wanted to pay attention to one of the issues that Amazon was talking about a lot, which was housing affordability and expecting to see some traction on housing affordability issues, especially as the company was expanding its second headquarters. And so we were, we'd work on the Urban Institute report, but as we would talk to different, not really even senior members of corporations, I think the senior leaders understood the issues of housing affordability and impact. It was really convincing some of the more day-to-day -day managers that housing affordability was an issue that they should be concerned about and could do something about. Most of the time when we talk about affordable housing, people think it's, it's the public housing residents that I'd love to serve, right? And... It's somebody with a voucher who doesn't earn enough money to live. That's actually not true. And I, I really saw that in Atlanta. Atlanta has, it's a housing authority with a work requirement. And so in order to get subsidies at Atlanta Housing, you have to have a job. And I could see in all of the employers that a lot of those employers were corporate employers mm -hmm. who, for various different reasons, had lower income jobs, lower wage jobs. But those jobs really supported the Atlanta economy. Of course. And quietly, that housing authority supported 10% of the rental market in Atlanta wow. through our subsidies. 10%? So it did. And so coming to D.C., I actually had a very different view of housing affordability. And when I would talk to you again, and some of these more mid-level managers about their talent attack, attraction and recruitment efforts and where they're seeing real issues, particularly those in Northern Virginia, what they found is that at a certain pay level and a certain pay grade, if an employee either didn't have access to a car and maybe had a spouse where they could afford the additional parking or what have you, sitting in traffic for hours, not having a place to live near their corporate office, that was a real problem. But we wouldn't call that housing affordability because affordable housing issues are for poor people. We were not talking about poor people. We're talking about people who are earning a decent wage but don't want to come and work for my company anymore because of the commute issues and the fact that there's no housing nearby that they can afford. And so 
really tying the two together to make it make sense that that I have an image of housing, affordable housing and what it means, but I'm not translating that into the issues that the business issues that I'm dealing with every day. Interesting. So you were at the Greater Washington Partnership and how did the relationship with Amazon develop out of that? Yeah. So I was at the Greater Washington Partnership. I met Alice Shove, who's the director for Amazon in the community. And of course, Brian Kenner went over to Amazon and she was out meeting with folks. I met her at a hand conference and Amazon had just started making small dollar investments in housing. And Amazon was being relatively quiet about wanting to hire somebody who could help them through an affordable housing strategy. And so I actually, a friend sent me the job description, and it was a big job description, head of community development. It only mentioned housing, I think, once. And I decided, after being at the Greater Washington Partnership, why not? I'd love to go work for Amazon. I'd love to go influence what they're doing in HP2 and other markets around housing affordability. And so might as well try it out. So HQ2 had already been in it place been. in yes. place at that point. Yeah. Okay. So it was more curiosity, it sounds like to you. It's to, I mean, you could still be at the Greater Washington Partnership, right? I yeah. could. I yeah. could. Right. Yeah. But what I found, especially working for Denped, is that if you don't take risks, yeah. You're never going to see right. real progress. Right. And I was curious enough about what Amazon wanted to do. I was very attracted to the idea that I could innovate and do something totally different. And so I thought it was worth the risk. Mm-hmm. So did you ever sit down with Jeff Bezos? I've met him, but I've not actually sat down with okay. him. But I will say he, is, he and Andy Jassy have had an amazing influence on my career here and trajectory at Amazon. Mm-hmm. Did they share their your, their vision with you at all as far as what they wanted to do? They did in bits and pieces. We had senior leader team meetings months, just a few months into my tenure here at Amazon. Maybe I can back up and tell you a little bit Please. about how Amazon works. Please. Because Please. that's really important to how, how the housing equity fund can come to be. Yep. Amazon is known for being having a writing heavy culture. Mm-hmm. We operate off of a six page document. I've read and that. And our six page documents can be pitches, they can be updates. They are intended to be very short, concise explanations for general for, for decision making purposes and to really drive decision and consent and and consensus and drive an issue forward. And so two weeks into my time here at Amazon, my goal was to come up with one affordable housing deal and the company's position on affordable housing by the end of the year. And so I started working on a six-page document to outline how we would go about doing it and came up with this idea of creating a fund. Rather than just going after one project, let's create a fund and let's create a fund that at, my idea was $10 million. We collectively, internally, it was actually our PR person at the time. He said, no, go for $2 billion. Don't go for $10 billion. Two. <laughs> so $10 million to $2 billion. Well, I'm sorry. My original idea was $10 billion, <laughs> And she said, go to $2 oh, billion. Bi- okay. All of the other company, tech companies that have been out there, Facebook, Microsoft was the first, but Facebook, Google, Apple, with pretty significant sizable commitments. They were all somewhere between two and two point five billion dollars. Wow. Microsoft being relatively small because they're operating in all after, after affordable housing. All after affordable housing. And so it was not unheard of that Amazon would come out with a multi-billion dollar investment. And two months into my time, we pitched the idea. I started in June. By August we pitched the idea to Jay Carney. 
Thank goodness it was Jay Carney because Jay Carney understood housing affordability and believed in the idea. And so we got advanced to the next level, got to meet with senior team leaders. For the listeners, say who Jay is. Jay Carney was Obama, President Obama's, I would say, best known spokesperson. And he previously, he joined Amazon to lead our government and corporate affairs division and really oversaw the startup of Amazon in the community, weighed in heavily on a lot of our government affairs and oversaw our public policy team, which is a relatively new division for Amazon and did a lot of great work. But most importantly for us, he understood the housing issues. He understood the political dynamic. He had heard from regional leaders, including Senator Mark Warner, about the importance of Amazon investing in housing affordability and was willing to advance proposals and programs that would speak directly to those issues. So I know it's an internal document, but would you be would you be willing to share that document? <laughs> <laughs> no way. We don't even share it internally at Oh, really? But what I will say is, because we've been going back and spending a lot of time looking at it, it is amazing. We did what we said we were going to do. I know. That's why I'd lo- love to have it. <laughs> because it's amazing the results you've yes. had. <laughs> yeah. So the premise behind the Amazon Housing Equity Fund is that Amazon come in as a lender. And it was actually part of the inspiration was from the partnership. In the partner, Greater Washington Partnership, one of the first thing they did, one of the first things they did was for transportation and they issued a regional transportation framework, a regional transportation policy. And they worked with some corporate leaders. And one of the ideas is that we need funding to go into transit and affordable housing. And they got head of MedStar to be able to co-sign on the idea, one of the leaders at Deloitte. So this was a really in-depth, thoughtful look at transit infrastructure and its impact on regional growth. And that concept stuck with me that maybe there's a different way to look at affordable housing outside of the ways that we're always thinking about affordable housing and do something totally different. And so as we were looking to set up the fund, the pitch was exactly what it is. We're going to focus on preservation of affordability because we have a hole in our boat. We can't build our way out of our affordable housing problem. We really do have to start looking at some of these existing BNC class buildings and keeping them affordable. We're going to focus on non-traditional partners. We're going to look at transit agencies, healthcare agencies, education institutions. And last but not least, we're going to make sure that we are equitable. We're going to bring in minority developers as partners from day one, and we're going to do what we can, what's within our power to support diverse partnerships across the board and not just partnerships from the usual suspects. Wow. So go into the operating strategy. You know, you, you set up this fund, you got the, the thumbs up. Yep. I don't know if you got an initial bulk amount from your approval or did, would that, would that grow over time? Yeah, so we actually, we got all of the funding up front, if you can believe it. The fall of 2020 was probably my most intense work time. I had not even updated my LinkedIn to tell people that I worked at Amazon. So I was doing all of this work in relative quiet. But coming to Amazon, there are magical features. There are people like Tony Mason, who's our treasurer, who was really interested in thinking through ways that we could leverage a treasury and Amazon's capital. And at the time, Amazon's low cost of capital to be able to invest in something like affordable housing because his wife was an affordable housing developer and he understood the value of low cost capital to be able to make a deal happen or not make a deal happen. 
We had John Shuttler, who is our global corporate vice president for corporate real estate. And John was not only responsible for the development, overseeing the development of our South Lake Union campus and all of that beautiful design, as well as our HQ2 campus and the the Helix, which is really going to stand out, world-class development. But John took the risk at Amazon to boldly use his budget and his power to build out Mary's Place, a 200-bed homeless shelter that is located on our Seattle campus in the Puget Sound. It's right there. It's a a building away from our Amazon and the community corporate offices. And he took an old motel that Amazon owned and converted into a state-of-the-art, family-friendly homeless shelter that will remain in the Seattle ecosystem in perpetuity and has already started to benefit so many families. And Amazon has been able to double down and, and provide pro bono services to those families, provide other philanthropic corporate given really embrace a very bold move in the center of its corporate campus. And so we had a number of leaders in and around Amazon who had been thinking about this problem and thinking about how does the company go bold in a space like affordable housing where the issues are entrenched in communities. You can very easily get lost in a community debate, and it may not actually even be about affordability. It might be about traffic or density or design or what have you. And so the the issues can be really charged but also an issue that's really expensive. And so people have been thinking about it. And when they saw the idea of the housing equity fund, they were willing to get behind it. But we also had something else going for us that really I can't say that it was of my making. It just ended up having to work out. We've been talking to a number of different project sponsors about that first project. What was our first investment in affordable housing going to be? We got a few different proposals, and one of the first buildings we wanted to buy, the, the property owner still hasn't sold it, even years later. I won't say what it is, but we really wanted to buy it. It's in the Arlington community. It's a diverse community that is at risk of at, at risk of being redeveloped in its entirety and with no protections. And we knew that there was going to be a lot of speculation in the market and wanted to do something to help. But instead, our partners at the Washington Housing Conservancy came back with what I say say is a project you could not unsee, which was Crystal House. And on the offering memorandum for Crystal House, it was only marketed to a small group of firms, four or five firms. Luckily, JBG was one of them. And Amazon's name was all over the offering memorandum. So I could take that offering memorandum, that image, and show our senior executives that you're going to have a $400 million plus sale of a property a block away from HQ2 if we don't step in and help a mission-driven partner acquire it. This may start the domino effect of exactly what we don't want to happen. And so our leadership, because of the investment in Mary's Place, did not blink at the idea of having to go, and I shouldn't say didn't blink. Of course, we examined, we, we scratched, we sniffed, we turned over, did all of our due diligence. But we, we got support for making the $381 million investment that we ultimately made. But not only getting support, we got support to doing it real-time quickly. The, con- the project came up in September. By middle of October, we had the highest level of approval at Amazon and the, the green light to get to closing. We had 45 days. I was brand new at Amazon. I had 45 days to negotiate what was probably the largest individual real estate deal of my career 
but luckily with people that I knew. With JBG, I'd worked with AJ, with AJ Jackson. AJ's great. I had worked with Kimberly Driggins. And so it was also a space that I ironically was very comfortable in. And we, we closed it. And not only did we close it, but the terms that we closed it on set the gold standard for the rest of the fund. So that really was your, your template. It was. Deal. It was. We, when we, we stuck in one other deal, which doesn't get a lot of talk in the HQ2 region, but the second deal was with King County Housing Authority. King County Housing Authority, because I worked in Atlanta, I knew the executive director of King County. He actually was yeah. a mentor of mine when mm-hmm. I was in Atlanta, would allow me to call. And he was a veteran in the business, and I would call him and ask him all kinds of questions. So and we knew each other. So when I got to Amazon, I was like, hey, I have your proposal. I knew what work he was doing. He was Mm -hmm. building up a portfolio of about 7,000 workforce housing units. It was a really well-run housing Mm -hmm. authority, very well-run portfolio. And his idea was that Amazon should invest in more of those housing units, particularly in Bellevue, Washington. They had already started making inquiries and had made a lot of progress with local property owners who were willing to sell them multifamily properties in a very tough market. And so we agreed to try it and said, we're going to give you, essentially, we're going to agree to helping you buy a thousand units, primarily in Bellevue, Washington, a portfolio of properties. And so when we launched the housing equity fund, we had two deals. We had Crystal House, which was the $381 million deal. We had our, our agreement with King County Housing Authority to invest $185 million to help them acquire a thousand units. They were going to issue the bond financing to match our funding. And six months later, they actually acquired all a thousand units. They executed very strongly and quietly on their commitment. And I feel like we lucked up with some really good partners who knew their markets, who could execute quickly, but most importantly, do it in a way that benefited our customers, benefited low to moderate income families in a way that we quite frankly could not. So talk about kind of the the development of this whole thing, because I know on reading your criteria, you want to focus only in those metropolitan areas that you're in. Correct. And I'm sure there are people coming in from everywhere in the world because Amazon is everywhere. Hey, why not our city? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say, one, the housing equity fund was a start. And with any expensive problem, you have to start somewhere. And you have to prove that what you're doing is effective. And we decided to start in headquarter locations where we had a large corporate presence, but a large enough corporate presence in the context of that location that we needed to address housing affordability issues. Meaning there are some corporate locations we are in where we don't have enough employees to really influence the real estate market one way or another. It doesn't mean that there aren't housing affordability issues there. It doesn't mean that it's really, it's, it's not a, challenge that we should be aware of. It's just not something that is, we're not a big enough influence in that market to be able to Mm -hmm. have that much of an impact. And so we wanted to start with the toughest. And we started with Seattle and we started with the Washington DC area, which is really a a tri-state area in in Nashville, Tennessee, to show that we could move at scale. And we set out to 
It's a five-year fund, a three-year capital commitment period, which allows us to deploy all the capital within that five years and have all 20,000 units up. And when we launched the fund, honestly, we launched it just hoping and praying that people would pay us attention and hoping that people would take us seriously. <laughs> and oh my God. you'd be surprised. We launched on January 6, 2021. And I remember being in my seat at 5 a.m. and literally felt like I was watching a spaceship launch with all of the news articles that kept coming mm-hmm. up. And then by noon, it stopped. It went radio silent because of the insurrection at the Capitol. Nobody was paying attention to the housing. Oh my God, that's right. Yeah, January 6th. (laughs) So we just did this amazing thing. I closed close to $600 million in deals, launched a $2 billion fund, and it went radio silent. So our first six months, people don't remember this, but we didn't have, we had a couple of questions about when we were going to open up an application. So how did the dam break? How did the dam break then? (sighs) It was transit. So um, because we had announced and we didn't get quite the traction that we wanted, I was like, we're just going to keep going forward. Mm-hmm. We had our first preservation deal. So the first grouping, our first right. kind of goal was we could check the box. And we had two, two across in the country. We didn't have anything on the transit side. And a little birdie gave me a heads up that Sound Transit had an equitable development plan and they were looking for corporate funders. They've been working with LISC and about how to bring in more corporate funding to help fund the finance the affordable housing that they plan to build. There, there's a state requirement for Sound Transit that 80% of its land has to be used for the purposes of affordable housing or community development. So as they're building out their rail station, they've actually gotten ahead of the problem. Let me just stop you for a second, just for listeners, because most people are Washington, D.C. area people. You're talking about Seattle. Seattle, correct. It's a new transit line that they're just building out. They don't have the benefit of the metro and the metro system plus Mark and BRE. Right. So Seattle is very car heavy. And we said, hey, we want to come in as a corporate partner. And within a matter of weeks, we went back to Wamada, to Nina Albert, and said, who also came out of Dempet. So she she understood what we were talking about. We sure said, hey, does. we talked to Sound Transit. Are you interested in partnering with us? And she said, yes, absolutely. And they had a list of affordable housing deals that they had wanted to move through. And WeGo was a little bit harder because they don't own any land. And so we wanted to figure out a way to really support TOD development in Nashville and got all three transit agencies to move at the same time. We signed those letters of intent in March. So it took me months. I, I, I feel like I know secrets and before they're announced. We announced it in June. Internally, I don't think people really thought it was a big deal. They just thought, oh, this is cool. The housing equity fund got announced without a lot of, with fanfare, but not not a ton. The transit announcement got attention from people in a very different way. And I think that's when things started to shift. Our application opened, people started to pay us attention. And then when we closed on our first set of deals, everything changed. Yeah. Parcel 42 was our first. We actually didn't start announcing deals that we had closed on really until later in, I guess, in at, by the end of 2021, we had the Barcroft. But we hadn't really announced a ton of deals. We were operating relatively quietly. The Barcroft was a big game changer because of the size of the Barcroft. But then once we started opening, announcing smaller deals, everything shifted. <laughs> when, did you, when did you start the... Uh... African-American developer 
relationships? Yeah. How did that evolve? That was actually from day one. Oh, really? What we did is we established an internal goal to say we want to work with developers of color. And so what we did is we made sure that their application review got priority review. How did they know about it? I mean, how did you get the word out about that? Housing Equity Fund. I like to say our middle name is Equity. Yes. Once you say your it's middle name word. is Equity and word. people read in the press release that you want to work with minority developers, people start to come out. But it only took a couple. Our first two investments were with Jair Lynch and Dante's partners. But you're talking about two developers who are very sophisticated, who watch the market, who know how to take advantage of Both of whom are podcast capital, guests. Right. Yes. Both are podcast guests of mine. Yes. Bulbaniti and Jira Lynch. Yes. Yeah. So they, right. they saw it immediately. And then once they got yeah. into the Amazon system, mm -hmm. people said, okay, this might be possible. Mm-hmm. Then we announced our launch our application for our fellow program, and people started to say, okay, they may be serious, and got Capital Impact Partners to help us really focus on that emerging developer cohort. And then the game changer was our September 2022 announcement. When we came out and we announced over $160 million of investments, 12 new deals, nine of those transactions were with developers of color, diverse developers of color, not just African-American. And the best part is a lot of them were people who pe people have not heard of. SGA, companies who's developing in Tacoma Park, Maryland, right across the Tacoma Metro Station. Brad Cardona, who's developing at Benning Road Metro Station while they are a developer or at St. Elizabeth. They're not your typical BUA or Jair Lynch's of the world. They're, they're a relatively newer firm. So how do you... How do you screen? I mean, what? I mean, how do you know whether somebody's really good or not yeah. being able to perform? Yeah, two things. One, most of the partners we have have a track record, and not everybody does, but most of them do. And particularly in the DC area, we are rich in diverse-led firms who have a lot of experience. The District of Columbia, for years, has opened up development opportunities, and so you're not talking about development firms who are in their first project. And maybe not on their fifth project, probably on their 10th project by the time they come and approach an Amazon. And so we lucked up in circumstance just in terms of being in a market that has a rich, diverse population of development partners that we can choose from. And then the second one is being really intentional. You'll notice that our investments with developers of color fall off when you go into a place like Seattle or even Nashville because the capacity isn't there. And so our intentionality showed up in the fact that we established an accelerator program across all three markets. They're operated by local nonprofits, LISC in the Puget Sound, Urban League in Nashville, and here, Momentus, or Capital Impact Partners. And we said, we want you to, because we know so many of those minority development firms are really emerging firms mm -hmm. that need quick access to capital. We want you to focus on mentorship, training, and providing that quick access access to capital. But we want you to to narrow your pool. That's we can't. Great. We don't have enough money to save everybody. Right. But if you if you have a selection process and you really focus on who you're trying to help, that'll better it, that'll better connect us to who are those emerging firms and how does a company like Amazon need to show up to support them. That's awesome. So another podcast guest of mine was Cedric Bobo. I don't know if you've ever met Cedric. Oh. Yeah. His group is called Project Destined. Ooh. Are you familiar with Project Destined? Absolutely. Okay, I'm curious if Amazon has looked at Project Destined at all as far as a co-investment because 
He's attracted capital from a lot of major companies already. We haven't yet, but it's something we would be happy to look at. Because yeah, um, we should, are looking at innovative ways. That you should meet like. Cedric. It's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a special guy. That's wonderful. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just put that out there. I'll make sure I write him after this conversation. That's he knows. great. I'm sure he'll want to meet you. <laughs> I'm absolutely certain of it. So, so the fund is also aligning with large nonprofit advocacy groups like ULI Washington on several initiatives. Discuss some of those and what, yeah. what, what are those doing? So the fund is broken down into two ways. There's a $2 billion capital pool, and we okay. really focus those dollars on bricks and mortar, trying to get to yep. the 20000 affordable housing unit goal. But we also have $125 million of programmatic grants. And what we decided is that we needed to come into the market and support local nonprofits who are doing more of the policy research, data, and insights work as we're directly funding affordable housing investments. And that was really important to us because a lot of that work, one, informed the housing equity fund and led into the ideas that we had. But two, there are a lot of issues out there that still need to be talked about that we want to make sure that there's plenty of information and plenty of discussion to keep the momentum going. So I'll give you an example or two examples. First is COG, the Regional Council for Governments. They encompass all of our local governments run by Chuck Bean, who was also a guest. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen Chuck's magic somehow got all of the regional leaders to agree we're going to play in this affordable housing space. And we're all going to advance forward because of the work that he had done leading up into COGS 2019 Regional Affordable Housing Resolution and getting everybody aligned around, one, the idea that the region has housing supply issues, irregardless of affordability, that the region needs to provide more housing and be able to develop more housing, but that that housing should be affordable to lower moderate income households, but also in this region that housing needs to be transit-oriented housing. That gave us the path forward for how the Housing Equity Fund could show up. And so we were able to go back to the Council of Governments and support their housing affordability planning program. And we gave, we've given them over $500 million to be able to support local planning efforts. They make the selections around transit-oriented properties and in regional communities. ULI, we wanted to be able to support their conversations around regional growth and housing affordability and making sure that they're keeping the issues top of mind as the approaches in housing affordability change. The players who are at the table, Fairfax is at the table in a way that they've never been before, making sure that a lot of this discussion is talked about so that we don't just focus on gloom and doom. Yes, we know there's a demand. Yes, we know there's a need. But we need to dissect that need so that we can, one, better understand it and better understand what tools we need, but also bring people along who are really critical to these conversations because Amazon alone can't solve it. We have to make sure that the entire ecosystem is focused on this this challenge and contributing to it. What's intriguing to me beyond everything else that you've done is the, how you're defining affordable housing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that... That's a really critical message it is. that a lot of people don't really understand. It is. And maybe is. you can expand on that just a little bit more. Yeah. So we focus on customers earning between 30 and 80% of area median income, which really to most people doesn't mean anything. You don't know who are these people and, and why are their housing needs so significant? I'll explain. I'd like to explain it in, in the way that I understand it, which is that 
you have entities like housing authorities, you have local housing departments that have different subsidies, and they're really focused on those lower income households, those hard to serve homeless populations, as well as those who are section eight, those who are at minimum wage or just above minimum wage. While there are not ample resources or enough sufficient resources to be able to support them, there are targeted resources that governments put out to make sure that those populations are supported. The market is filling the need on the market rate side. And so if you can afford a market rate rent, the market will take care of you and you can decide whether you want to live in Crystal City or you want to live in Navy Yard, really depending on your affordability. But you you will likely find something that is within your budget. However, if you're if you're just above low income and you don't earn enough to actually live in one of those market rate units, you're stuck in the middle. There are no government subsidies for you. There's no affordable housing product that's really targeted at making sure that there are there's housing you can afford. And what happens is most people drive until they qualify for housing, which means that they're moving further and further out. Stafford County or someplace Correct. like that. Yeah. And who are these people? There are teachers, right. there are store managers, there are nonprofit workers. In, during COVID, when we shut down, we realized how important all these people are to our community, and they just weren't close enough in to be able to do what they needed to do. And so being able to focus on those low to moderate income households was our way of going into a section of the market that wasn't being serviced, focus on those customers, make sure that there is dedicated housing stock specifically for them, and in, in, in our urban areas, those near transit stations, those with quality amenities, and those areas that we really saw a lot of development coming, making sure that there is some dedicated housing stocks that we can start to balance out the market. So talk about your organization, the fund organization. How did you, how did you start it? And how did you set it up? How did you grow yeah. it? Well, if you can believe it, we have a team of 12 across six different divisions that support the housing. And that's fund. in all three cities? In all three cities, nine of those team members are dedicated full time. I would say six of them only spend their time on housing equity fund matters. We have a small but nimble team. And that team of six just got built in August of last year. So most of this work has been done with a very small group. But what we did is we essentially start, we we operated in a way where we could keep our overhead low by relying on third-party underwriters. We have external underwriters. We charge their fees as part of the origination fees to the deal. So we're able to keep our overhead costs relatively low. And then our internal team are really industry experts who are able to issue spot and make sure that we're managing the the funds and the portfolio from the Amazon side, reviewing applications making sure that we're applying consistent underwriting standards. We have an internal investment committee comprised of multiple different divisions to make sure that there's oversight and visibility into the work that we're doing and that there are checks and balances, if you will. And then finally, just having the additional support to get all of the closings done. Last year, we had well over 40 closings. And so we've been able to support that work through a combination of external support, but a very bright, a very sophisticated and innovative internal Amazon team. Well, where did you find these people? Because to handle 40 (laughs) deals of the scope, and some of them are as small as like one or two million, and some are, as you said, 400 million. Yeah. Okay, so. 
Well, you know, one of the things that I learned at Amazon, Amazon does a really good job of hiring very talented people that while they may not be industry experts, know how to dissect a problem so that they can really support and then we bring in industry experts where needed. And so our legal counsel is a real estate expert who is overseeing our affordable housing investments, but also works with external counsel that has affordable housing expertise and can bring that expertise to the table. But you find people who operate in the industry and maybe operate in obscure places because a place like Amazon Housing Equity Fund didn't exist before. You can't go off and find somebody who's operated at this scale. And so you have to find either people who have worked on the national level at like a HUD or a Fannie or a Freddie. Mm -hmm. Our development, our principal development and finance person actually came out of, was the previous director of development for the District of Columbia. So it's overseen a pretty large portfolio, but also had experience in public housing. So it was sensitive to community issues. We actually brought in some internal Amazonians who both have an interest, but also a personal tie to housing affordability. I have a woman on my team who came over from our tax department who actually grew up in public housing in Hawaii of all places and loves the fact that Amazon is doing this work and is bringing that very sophisticated analysis to a problem like housing equity. And so we've just lucked up between a combination of internal Amazonians who are really organized, very disciplined, use all of the Amazon principles to dissect the problem, to industry experts who are willing to come in and operate at a very different scale. Yeah, you know, affordable housing is perhaps the most complicated financing structure of all. It is. And it's, it's, it's so ironic, and two of my podcast guests talked about it. That's how African-Americans get into the business. It's mm-hmm. usually affordable housing route. And, you know, Abul Beniti talks about how, because he's a really a finance guy, and mm-hmm. he really got into the numbers. He said, I really had to put my head down and understand the numbers first before I could get any credibility yeah. to, in doing anything. Yes. And that was the hardest part. And. These deals can have five, six, seven layers of, of debt or equity in, in them. So it's just, you know, multi. I'm a finance guy. So yep. I met him actually. T- I helped teach at Howard. I, I was involved with a Project REAP, which is Mike Bush's program. And I was teaching that. So I saw firsthand some, some of the challenges because they were talking, you know, some were going to property management, where some were going to the affordable housing sector. And I said, you know, these deals are not easy to structure. They're not. And I did some with DCHCD when I was early in my career. And we had like a ground lease. We had two layers of subsidy before the first mortgage that I placed. Mm-hmm. So the first mortgage was an institutional investor. And then we had two layers. And then we had a ground lease under that. Mm-hmm. The district government bought the land and did the lease back. And, you know, it's just, I said, you know. Does this have to be this complicated? Well, I guess it does to get to the numbers because obviously the returns were not market. They yeah. were so low that yep. you could, it could be affordable. Plus the rents were subsidized as well on top of that, not just the real estate, but the rents, the, you know, the tenants were subsidized. So it kind of is, is like, this is a myriad. This is a it's very right. complex right. Right. animal That's here. Right. It, 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 given the complexities, one of the things we really focused on early on was simplifying our model, simplifying our funding model, being very clear about gap right. funding, being very clear about what our funding expectations are, providing some flexibility depending on the project, the level of affordability, the bedroom sizes and the like, but really keeping it simple and not overcomplicating how we were investing our dollars. So even our application process, we have a two-stage application process. 
And I remember when we rolled it out, everybody took a deep breath and they were like, oh gosh, now we got to do another $30,000 bid to be able to get this money. And the answer was no, you're going to submit a form on Salesforce to tell us about your project. And we're going to determine whether or not we want to work interested based on location and other just social factors. And then Stage two, we're going to ask for your Excel pro forma in a standardized form. We're not going to we're not going to make you incur the costs that you typically do in applying for funding. We're not going to ask for the same level of information. We'll make a decision on whether or not we plan to move forward, and then hopefully we have selected the right partner who is used to extensive underwriting, and most of the work is done in our underwriting process. So how do you design a capital structure on a deal? So let's just say you can get a conventional first mortgage and. 60, 65%. How do you build from there? What is the developer required to put up and how are you structuring that? Just out of curiosity. Every deal is different. And so typically most lenders or most developers come in with their primary financing already in place. They may have some sort of secondary debt, either housing production trust fund or some local subsidy that they're able to layer in. And then we come in as the gap filler. Our goal is to be no more than 25% of a project cost, but sometimes we have to go higher, sometimes we're lower. And we come in with really just cheap debt. We're, we don't overcomplicate it. Sometimes we come in with grants depending on what So your vehicle is a debt vehicle always? It's primarily a debt vehicle. It's not always a debt vehicle, but it is primarily, primarily a debt vehicle. So you don't share an upside in your deals? We do not. Okay. We just get a simple interest return, and it is a below market interest, and, and that reduction in our interest rate shows up on our books. So Amazon is carrying the cost of operating the housing equity fund, but it's just a simple interest payment. A number of our deals are operating off of cash flow payments, and so if our landlord is, property owner is not making money, we're not getting the interest payments, but do expect to get a return of our principal. And so most of our capital is going to get repaid at refinancing at some later stage. But what that means is that we're willing to take on a lot more risk than some of your traditional affordable housing MES debt lenders to provide the flexibility, but also the ability for different project sponsors not to have to jump to different lending partners mm-hmm. from construction to from construction to actual building ownership and operation, we don't want them to have to incur additional financing costs just based on how we're putting our money in the deal. It also sounds a lot simpler than the tax credit process as well. It is. It is. And it's not <laughs> as competitive. And right. even this year, we are watching the tax credit allocations from all of our jurisdictions. We're seeing that in all three jurisdictions, tax credits, even 4%, which historically have been competitive in Washington State, in places like D.C. and the DMV are now competitive, that there are a lot more affordable housing projects, which is great, but a lot less money to be able to put towards them. So did Amazon ever invest in tax credits, or was that never part of the, the process? We considered it, but it's not something that we've decided to do at scale. But it is something that we're considering. We're looking at all the different tools that we can use to mm-hmm. influence the housing market. But, you know, this is obviously a much different commitment. So you said that other companies are doing this, mm-hmm. which is interesting. So other tech firms are doing it. Correct. Why is it that your firm is getting the most, you know, is it because you're so good at public relations and everybody knows that what you're doing? <laughs> no, it's because we went direct. 
Okay. We decided to cut out the intermediary. And while we stood up a very small, nimble team, we stood up a very strong team. Our, our underwriting team is committed. They are experienced in the affordable housing market. Our internal team is committed. But we decided to go into deals directly. And by cutting out the middleman, what that meant is that we could focus on projects like the Barcroft which came up unexpectedly and say, we're going to, we are directly going to help you figure out this, this challenge, Arlington County and, and Jair. And that made all the difference in the world. That's what's allowed us to get to, we are on track this year to internally be aware of what the 20,000 units are. It'll roll out over the next two to two and a half years, but we're on track to meet our 20,000 unit goal because we work directly with project sponsors on the affordable housing commitments. What's the ratio between deals that are under construction or ground up and existing property? Is is there a mix there? What's what's the mix? We're finding that our portfolio is split between preservation and new construction, which, as you can imagine, makes all the difference in the world. That our preservation strategy allowed us to come in and have a direct impact on the markets immediately. In Arlington County, let's just take that as an example. Between the investment in Crystal House, which is 619 units, it doesn't even include the additional units that Arlington Partnership for Affordable Housing and EYA are now going to build on the site. Plus another 1,300 plus units at the Barcroft, we were able to increase the dedicated stock of affordable housing in Arlington County by 20% in one year. Wow. Just by focusing on existing buildings. And for me, as somebody who's in the industry, what it means is that putting in flexible capital with mission-driven partners in a very simple formula. We give you cheap money, you give us a restrictive covenant on this property, and you agree to keep these rents low. That's the formula. And we're surprised by how many mission-driven partners are willing to show up and buy into that formula, simply because a lot of them are willing to take the lower of returns. You don't have as much turnover in the buildings. You're able to stabilize properties in a way that for a lot of these market rate buildings, they're probably feeling the pain of the economic (laughs) conditions that we're facing right now. The affordable housing development world, a lot of folks are finally seeing the value in creating more workforce housing products and more products for lower income families and the stability that you're able to see from those investments. Fascinating. So let's see. Addressing social impact, talk about, well, I guess we did talk about that. Do you think this formula could be emulated by other companies? I mean, the direct for focus that you have. I mean, are there other companies that are looking at Amazon's program saying, you know, I like this idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can we come in joint venture with you? You've already set up the template. Can we come in and subsidize and, you know, get on that train and kind of be a partner with you? Absolutely. And we're toying around with ways that we could partner. But I will say one of the things that I found particularly unique about Amazon is Amazon is in the news all the time. And affordable housing issues are tough. Both can, things, as like my friend David Bowers likes to say, can be true. We can be running a fund that is innovative, that is impactful, that is effectuating meaningful change, but that fund could also have holes in it. It could have also have room for improvement in areas where we haven't had as deep of an impact on issues like the, the low-income units and being able to produce more units at the 30% level. But at the same time, Amazon is willing to enter into those conversations, roll up its sleeves, and get a little bit muddy in a way that I don't think every corporation is willing to do. Amazon gets, I've seen Amazon get attacked a lot and and get criticized. And Amazon is a company that's used to being under a certain level of scrutiny. And so going into something like housing and the level of scrutiny that you have to endure, 
the, the level of questions that you have to endure from industry experts and others, and most importantly, from community leaders who have very real questions, Amazon is willing to go into those tough conversations, willing to take the hits, willing to sometimes humble itself and be wrong and say we can do better and shift. I've seen our team shift on issues real. And I don't know if every corporation is willing to do all of that if your primary focus is not an issue like housing affordability. So I feel I feel I'm getting the benefit of the Amazon brand, but also the toughness of the Amazon brand mm-hmm. to be able to do this work. So you're kind of at the forefront here, which is 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 great. It's really exciting. I I just I look at this issue and I think corporate America needs to step up and you guys are really the first and it's really exciting to see it. I mean, you know, I've been in the real estate business for 44 years now and I've worked in, you know, in that affordable sector in working with a big investor at the time, this was in 1985, six, seven. I worked for at with at an insurance company as a, as a correspondent here. And we, we had a program, it was called Project Crick, I think it was called. Mm. And so we invested in urban markets. And the whole idea was to find multifamily that we could. And so our first, my, the first deal I remember working on was on 1106 Columbia Road, which is now a, certainly a strong market area. It's a whole different framework. So yeah. east of 14th Street yep. in Washington. We yep. grew up in Silver Spring. I you did. know what I'm talking about. I did. Yeah. It's just, you know, the, how the city has changed in the last 20 years is just, it's astounding, actually, as to what's happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that because Amazon has seen so much change and so much change quickly, it knows to act and to move in a, in a sense of urgency. And there are a lot of lessons learned based on what happened in Seattle that our executives and our teammates are people. They live in these communities just like everybody else. And so they're equally as challenged when there are negative impacts on on their neighbors and other people who live in their city. And so I think there's an authenticity to our experience that is unique to Amazon that allows us to show up in these conversations and a willingness to to move in a bold way that I, I don't know you would get in other places and with other corporations who just want to be able to come in and do good. A lot of philanthropic programs can be very marketing. This is not a marketing program. This is a program that, yes, we can talk about the positive impacts, but does require some real courage to stand in and advance an issue like housing affordability. Well, hopefully you will get people doing it and competing with you for deals. <laughs> that would be wonderful. <laughs> Wouldn't that that be would something? be wonderful. Or there's actually a, a market for what you're doing. Yeah. More I, than just you being a monopolist yes, so far. Yes. And, and one of the things we're hoping to do is just show different ways. Right. Preservation. Like just being able to look at a building and saying, we're going to make this existing building and make sure that these rents are low. It's actually not as complicated as people think it is. And so we're hoping that as we're introducing new products into the market and new ways of approaching housing affordability outside of just tax credits and outside of the LIHTC structure and outside of housing production trust funds and just having some limited sources, that we're able to show different players, whether it's government entities, how to deploy capital quickly, or private corporations, how to infuse flexible capital into social good programs. Well, elevating back to Greater Washington Partnerships, it seems to me that what you've done is kind of look, you look around the room and say, okay, Greater Washington Partnership, <laughs> look what we've done. So I'll go down the companies here. Yeah. Marriott, 
Boeing, Lockheed Martin, SEIC. These are other major corporations, public companies. Public companies in Washington have to look at Amazon and say, wow, this is pretty impressive. I hope so. Right. But that's what I'm saying. Why can't you look at GWP and say, guys, come on, let's I join me in. I would love to. I would love Bring to. Bring it in. I would love to. We Bring should, it in. Yes. We, we talk to <laughs> our, our friends of the partnership all the time. The one thing I will say is that we also don't want to get too arrogant and too cocky because no. we know that, yes, we've had a successful first two and a half years, but real estate is can be fickle. And, and yes, we can show that others can join, but we also know that we're learning as we go as well. And we would love for others to join us in that learning journey, but you have to be ready to both see some successes, but also see some lessons. Well, as I said, I've been in the business for 40. I have never seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. This is incredible. I mean, you've done, I mean, I, I when I read about your program, I said, I have to interview her. <laughs> I just have to. And I was so, so pleased that you were willing to do this because, as I said, I've never seen anything like it. The amount of money that you've invested in the velocity that you have in the myriad period of time, I mean, it, you know, I hope you write a book. Yeah. Honestly, because yeah. this is this is unique. This, this I, I just have never seen anything like it. I don't in my career in any any other city in the country. I don't yeah. know if I've ever seen it. I one of the little known facts about me is that in my free time I like to drive around the city and just learn different neighborhoods. And I remember there are so many times where our friends are like, you know, gas prices are really high. You should really stop doing this. But now because I work in, in the office and sometimes this stuff can be theoretical, now when I drive around the city lights up. The region lights up in a way that it didn't before. The fact that we've gone from just Rhode Island Avenue as the metro's first affordable housing development to now having five actively under construction. I know. Or additional four actively under construction is unreal. And in the effects of our investments, I don't think we fully feel them at this point. But come five years from now, we are going to feel the effect of having so many more affordable assets close in. I also think this region is uniquely positioned to benefit from something like the Housing Equity Fund because we are so rich in transit. We have VRE, we have MARC, we have the Long Bridge expansion that's going to allow for more through service between Virginia and Maryland and D.C. That's going to open up this region in a very unique way. And it's not just the investments that we've made, but it's the, the groundwork that's been laid in this region by so many other players, the Greater Washington Partnership and others, that have allowed something like the Housing Equity Fund to be as impactful as it is and to show up in places where otherwise we wouldn't. Jubilee Housing just bought three buildings up and down 16th Street, beautiful neighborhood, Mount Pleasant, Columbia Heights area. Being able to have the Washington Housing Conservancy own Crystal House, all of the great work that Oppo is doing in Tyson's Corner. Those opportunities don't come if you don't have a region who's really at the ready and people have been thinking about these issues for years. And so It's really the luck of two stories, (laughs) preparation and then something magical happening and a really good opportunity. So I've I've looked at the footprint of your investments. It's interesting. But what I found interesting is the only project, at least I've seen so far in Prince George's County you've done, is the new Carrollton Metro Station. Oh, no. Actually, we are on target to potentially close on as many as six projects and transit ah, stations in Prince George's County. That's news to me. So we have announced New Carrollton. That we've I announced knew College Park. So Gilbane is developing oh, okay. at College Park. All right. We've announced Capitol Heights. 
which is Tina, Gina Merritt and Tony Wash. That um, one that I didn't actually, see. Yeah. That one went quietly. That was part of our DC announcement. We subtly snuck uh, it in. They have been okay. working with the county for quite some time. And then we are closing on another investment. I will not precede my announcement at another Prince George's County. So that will be our fourth closing. And then finally, West Hyattsville was our fifth. That's a Gilbane project. Gilbane project. Our fifth transit adjacent state station. And we invested heavily in Prince George's County for two reasons. One, Prince George's County, very few people realize, is transit-rich and has very little development around its yes, transit it stations. And so it, it provides a number of ripe opportunities to provide TOD housing. But also, Prince George's County, while it's been known to be the more affordable county in our region, county residents and county leaders have finally waking up to the fact that if that affordability is not dedicated affordable stock of affordable housing, that you're going to start to dwindle away at your affordable housing base and your your population, your ability to stabilize your, your population. But also areas like College Park are getting more and more affluent and you're seeing more and more development. And so if you don't hold on to those resources now, the county is not going to have the diversity of incomes that it historically has. And then lastly, with Angela Alsabrooks and Angie Rogers being in the county, the focus on transit in the Blue Line Corridor has really invigorated a lot of the county's efforts. And so being able to work alongside policymakers, but particularly move into an area where maybe housing affordability hasn't been appreciated or treated the same way mm-hmm. and put in a large ticket stake in the ground, I think is going to have a positive impact on the county's trajectory. All the markets you just talked about, maybe except for Capitol Heights, are outside the Beltway, though. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that the biggest issues are inside the Beltway in Prince yeah. George's County. Yeah, from affordability. Yeah, yeah, and we'll keep we'll keep plugging away. Yeah. Prince George's County has been an amazing partner. We're really proud of how they showed up. We're proud good. of all of the counties, but Prince George's County in particular showed up early and was willing to work with us. I think in a way right. that we were pleasantly surprised by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vicki Davis was one of my podcast guests. Yes. And she spoke very highly of the Amazon program. She was very <laughs> yes. excited about it. And we're really excited to work with her. She was actually one of our first female development firms that we mm-hmm. got into our fold. Most people don't think about Urban Atlantic as being female, and they just think about it as Urban Atlantic. But that was really a treat for me. Yeah, she's she's very special. Yeah, it was, that was my longest interview. <laughs> I believe it. Almost four I believe hours. it. I yeah. believe it. Yeah. So... So as a black female leader, what challenges have you faced in your career? How have you been able to make your voice heard and achieve the success you've had? Yeah, I think my style is changing. I've always been the younger person in the room. I'm no longer the younger person in the room, but I've always been the younger person who was able to rely on kind of her legal skills and my ability to just really work hard. I would, I would do a lot of behind the scenes work that people didn't realize. And I just, I embraced being the different person in the room. I actually found a lot of opportunity in being in places like the Historic Preservation Review Board and at a corporate law firm where maybe I was different because I was learning so much. Now it's a little different. Now it's really important for me to use my voice and point out differences even when it's uncomfortable, to push the envelope, particularly on issues like community development and affordable housing. When you're talking about who can live where, some of the terminology we use to do to describe people and where they're living, how we show up, who we're working with. 
I will say I am, I am, I push the envelope more than even I'm comfortable now because if I don't speak up, I find that there's nobody to speak up on these issues and there's nobody to raise concern around. Are we only putting low-income housing in Ward 8? Why, how, why, why can we not build affordable housing or low-income housing in Crystal City and in Bethesda and in Tyson's Corner? Like, why is it only in one section? And I, I luckily am in a position to ask those questions. And then lastly, I think just staying connected and making myself accessible. I really try not to get disconnected from my community. I show up in different boards, including Anacostia Coordinating Council, to say that I'm always going to be here. I may be in a corporate position now, but it's a community. It's an African-American community that gave me a lot, that it still teaches me a lot. They are honest with me about what they like and what they don't like. But a lot of that is showing up, going, giving back to Black organizations, being transparent about the fact that I do want other Black women <laughs> in conversations. I'm a board member for the Women of Color and Community Development and wear that badge proudly because a lot of particularly Black women don't show up in real estate, even in affordable housing. And so being a bit more willing to almost be a, a bit of a disruptor and bring race issues to the forefront. Now, my own background, I am, I, if you look at my DNA, I'm still mixed race. I grew up in a very diverse organization. So it doesn't mean that it's at the exclusion of others, but it really is pushing the envelope to make sure that these conversations around race and equity and inclusion are taken seriously, particularly given the level of influence that I now have to say, no, we do need to be in the room. It's your responsibility. Now. Yeah. I'll give you an example. When I first started working at the deputy mayor's office and we were negotiating with Red Brick, I remember looking at Louis Dubin like, I can't be the only woman in the room. <laughs> that was my that was my plight. It wasn't even the only, I don't know if I was the only person of color, but at least not on the, the DC government side. But I was like, I cannot be the only, I can't keep walking into rooms with men. And I remember everybody being really shocked. <laughs> I would open my mouth and dare say a thing. And guess what? I'm glad you he did. He found an amazing woman who could work mm -hmm. on our effort. Who, and that's when I realized that if I don't say anything, I'll always be the only other. And if I say something and I say it's really important, it's not just important for me to Black people to be in the room. It's also important for me to see LGBTQ people in the room, to see people with different disabilities, disabilities in the room, yeah. Tinos, sure. Asians. I don't want to be the only other because otherwise we're going to create something that doesn't actually work for everyday so, people. It's not the future either. No. Herman Bowles pointed out in my interview with him recently that in, by 2030 or 35, the majority of this, this nation will be a people of color. Yeah. Which is the future. It's right around the corner. Yeah. It is right around the corner. Yeah. So that means that people need to think differently. Yeah. And at least at the corporate, you know, the old white guys have to start thinking differently. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's a willingness. I've actually found in my in my career trajectory that it's it's actually a lot of people think it is the lack of inclusion and the lack of diversity is intentional. And in many times it's not. Sometimes it's that people of color or diverse people aren't willing to walk into the room or aren't willing to be a bit more uncomfortable. When I sat on HPRB, I remember clearly thinking like, oh, wow, I am very different from everybody in this room. And I have never felt more embraced and more respected for my views and my opinions and comfortable voicing them 
been on that board. And you would never think about a, a board that was run at the time by a, a Stanford grad who lived in Cleveland Park, who, sure. you know, yeah. was 60 years. I, I felt totally respected and totally embraced. And so I think it, it, it's both acknowledging that there are diversity and equity and inclusion concerns, but still being willing to show up in that room and say what needs to be said. Well, this country's come a long way. I mean, obviously, since the Obama administration, things have changed quite a bit. Yeah. I'm reading, a. I just finished a book, well, actually not quite done with it, called The Authority Gap. Mm-hmm. And it's about men and women. And it's about women and men having a completely different authority situation. <laughs> yes, <laughs> especially in real estate. Which is why I say I'm evolving my style. There are moments where I've been very feisty in my negotiations and and I'm learning to soften a little bit because I I no longer have to be as pushy. But but yeah, it does, particularly as a woman, it it takes some adjusting in real estate to show up and to really take on big, large, meaningful endeavors. Yeah, but I mean, even in a law firm, I'm sure the same thing. Yes. You're the only, the token in the room, pretty much, right? That's right. Yeah, so it's not going to be easy, <laughs> but you it strikes me that you have, A, a very boring personality. You also have a lot of courage, clearly, based on what you've said. So, And I'm guessing your your skin is so thick you can't cut it, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I am probably one of the more sensitive people. In <laughs> fact, I notice everything. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but I, I have a lot of empathy and I have a lot of love for That's people. Great. And in my free time, I spend a lot of time back to Elena Munchkin, who's now a full on yogi. I spend a lot of time not letting myself intentionally get wrapped up in the negative space, but really focusing on, on all the good that can happen. All of the people who will, were willing to show up. We could. We could separate ourselves based on race, but it's a lot of those older white men who made the Housing Equity Fund possible, who made my career trajectory possible here at Amazon. And so seeing myself as different or somehow condemning them because they've had a different privilege just isn't isn't something that I'd consider, but also not there to really what's actually happening. What's happening is that we're all working together to try to find a solution that benefits people. Well, it's so commendable. It's great. So... Now we're going to personal things a little bit. So <laughs> what what were your biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events in your career? Yeah. Well, I will say my biggest win. I, I would say it, it is definitely the Amazon Housing Equity Fund. There is no doubt that. about that. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like my guardian angels it led me to this place. And my guardian angels really helped me find the right resource at the right time and have the right opportunity at the right time and know who to call on. But I also love the work that we did at St. Elizabeth's. I am so proud of how St. Elizabeth's has grown from executive director to executive director, administration to administration. It's a very special place that people genuinely care about. People own St. Elizabeth's even more than I was a part of its story, but just the, the sense of connection that Washingtonians have, not just residents of Ward 8, but those who may have done work at St. Elizabeth's or whose family members had worked at St. Elizabeth's at some time or for whatever reason visited St. Elizabeth's. It's a very special place. The toughest challenges, I think, are more the political challenges. What I found, a lot of people ask me whether or not I want to run for office, and I always say no, with very strong emphasis on no, I will not. 
Because I found that for me, the biggest sense of failures really came from some of the political attacks and not being able to voice either my view or share my view or really share more information around what's going on. And what I found is that a lot of those political government positions can be really tough when you really care and you're working with a team who's showing up and doing the right thing. But one person can have a difference of opinion and throw you off. And I'll give you an example. What, when I was at St. Elizabeth's, our ANC commissioner, Mary Cuthbert, was known for, for really putting people on the spot. And we had a great relationship for years. And it was around the time we were negotiating our community benefits agreement and we had a difference of opinion. And now I was persona non grata with Mary. And I remember being mortified because that was my friend. <laughs> and had been a mentor for years. And I found that some of those political battles just don't sit well with me. And those have felt like some of my biggest failures, but really more, more disappointment around how the issues of community development and how we approach it can be politicized. How's your relationship with Mayor Bowser? Great. Great. And really one, I think, built on respect. I think she was learning me when I first came over to when she first became mayor. I worked with her when she was a council member and she had seen my work. But now coming back and not only being able to cheer her on in the work that she's doing at St. Elizabeth's, but be able to support her work in affordable housing. I think she's she's been pleasantly surprised and I've been really encouraged by her leadership. But you don't necessarily emulate her role. Is what you're seeing, no. what I'm hearing you no. say. <laughs> I don't envy her and all of the the challenges and attacks that she has to take on at all. Right. <laughs> right. And wouldn't want to aspire to her position no. at any time. No. 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 And even that look, that's what I get all the time. No. <laughs> Not at this stage in life. No, I understand. I I avoid politics myself as yeah. much as I can. So what's the most surprising event that's happened to you? What what has just hit you out of left field that you, gosh, I never expected this, either good or bad? Yeah, that's a good question. What has been the most surprising event of all of this? Honestly, the fact that I'm still here. I At Amazon or? Or just even in this field and able to have such an influence. When I started in this community development world, I was just a nosy busybody. I, I was trying things out. I would go to meetings. I'd ghostwrite letters. I, we ran a community marketing campaign that turned into Why Bus Boys and Poets is in Anacostia. It was really just coming up with crazy ideas, sort of against the wall and seeing what stuck. And, and we started out small. A lot of that stuff was with my own money. It wasn't, we weren't doing it for some major entity. And the fact that I, I am now here in this space is probably the biggest surprise that a lot of the the perseverance the diligence that I wish somebody had cared about this that if I stuck that I stuck with it and it is starting to show up and it's starting to make a huge difference is is astonishing to come back and see St. Elizabeth's to be able to see the great work that Atlanta Housing has continued to be able to build on. And at the end of last year, I will say I had to take some time and take a deep breath for what we did at Amazon because it's really easy to get distracted by the headlines and not appreciate that there are thousands of families who are going to be able to have a safe, quality place to live in this region because somebody cared enough to, to really push an idea and get it done. That's awesome. That's just great. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? 
be patient. Be patient. There's no rush. <laughs> oh, be patient and give yourself some grace when you're in those very tough moments. I, there are so many moments where I have faced real challenges and not known which way to turn and just having enough grace to know that it will and faith to know that it will work out even though I can't see what's in front of me. So when I was 25, I just bought my first house. I was a 25-year-old attorney at Patent Boggs, probably one of the youngest attorneys at Patent Boggs at the time. I wanted to go into community development. I, there were so many things that I wanted to do, but I was in the office all the time working really hard. Looking back on those times now, all of that hard work really benefited me. So it was part of the journey. It was part of a necessary part of the step. So I just have more patience with myself and know that it is all going to come in its own time. If you but, were there then, I mean, if you put yourself back there where you are, had you any idea at that point in time where you'd end up and where you are now? Absolutely none. Yeah. Absolutely none. I actually had a healthy fear of like, I just need to keep this job. <laughs> I want to keep up because billable hours are intense and you have to meet those billable hours every year. No, there's no way that I I thought that I would be in this position. I did have my North Star at the time was Ingrid Saunders-Jones at Coca-Cola Company. She really helped establish their foundation as a a powerhouse when they were doing a lot of work in Coca-Cola. So I had an idea that it was possible. I just didn't know it would be possible. Have you stayed in touch with her? No, but I got to see her when I was in Atlanta and spent some time with her. And she is just as wonderful as she has always Has she been. reached out to you in the last few months after your success? She has not. And I don't think she is fully aware of how much of an influence she is for me. Well, you <laughs> and every time well, I meet her, I get very starry-eyed. And I and I, I try to remind her, but she gets it from You can so send her people. a copy of this podcast. I then. sure will. <laughs> <laughs> she would love that. Yes. <laughs> So if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? I would actually say this region cares. That's great. For everything that I've seen, all of the debates, the fact that an everyday person like me, despite all of the the background, I'm a very normal everyday person, can work with very normal everyday people to have make such a change and people who genuinely want to do the right thing. I think the big theme that I have coming out of this is that this region cares, that people really do care about what happens. It doesn't always show up, but that this region cares. That's great. Well, that's, that is so inspiring. Thank you, Thank you. very much. Thank I really you. appreciate your time. <laughs> Thank My you. My pleasure. <laughs> So we just listened to Catherine Buell of Amazon Housing Equity Fund, and what a special lady she is. That was a very special interview. And so as I usually do, I bring, I'm bringing on a, a postscript guest. And for the first time, I'm bringing on Allie Sherman, who is part of my iconic journey in CRE group and the first female to a postscript with me. Welcome, Allie. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it and looking forward to this conversation after hearing the wonderful podcast episode. You know, Catherine's quite a phenomenal woman and a lot of great takeaways, I think, from the episode that I'm really looking forward to discuss with you. That's great. So go ahead. Give me your takeaways. What do you what what did, what, what did you take away from the conversation that you thought was insightful or interesting? 
Yeah. So, you know, a couple of key points. I think the first, you know, obviously since Amazon announced that, you know, Arlington National Landing was going to be the HQ2, I believe November 2018. I mean, they've made quite a splash in the capital region and, you know, working to build out a lot of different areas within the DMV. And, you know, there's going to be 25,000 new team members that come to the DMV, which is quite substantial. And thinking about all of the other partners and how many new people will be coming to the district and thinking about a lot of those folks are not going to, you know, they're, they're going to have, you know, issues with the, the rents being so high and making it a priority to make sure that people can live in comfortable housing that's accessible to work is something that is so, so, so important. And so, you know, what Catherine has set up is going to be instrumental for employees of Amazon, for just citizens within the, the DMV as well. And so I think that's really important as well. I think as we were discussing before, I, I, I think I just looked, the stat is about in DC alone, area median income AMI is about 100,000, which is quite high compared to many other cities. And the average apartment is for one bedroom, I think is just over $1,500 a month. And so these programs are going to be instrumental to make sure that, you know, People can, again, live comfortably in, in the area. So, you know, you, you've obviously been in D.C. For, for quite some time. And, you know, you know, I would love just to hear your thoughts on what you thought about, you know, some of the, the initiatives. I think this is like, the, as you mentioned in the episode and talking about Catherine, like the first of its kind creating this, this type of program, providing loans and, you know, different financing to developers, you know, predominantly developers of color as well to, to, to build all of this, this housing that's, again, going to be instrumental to the region. Yeah, this is a pioneering effort, clearly. Yeah. Uh, no other corporation's ever done anything quite like this that I've heard of nationally, even of this scale, certainly, mm-hmm. particularly for not just as an investment for their employees specifically, but a much broader initiative for affordable housing in in regions, not just Washington, but in Nashville and Seattle as well. But the impact in Washington, I think, has been larger than the other two markets, and I think a little bit biased by Catherine growing up in the Washington, D.C. area. And so she understands this area well. One of the things she said she likes to do is to drive around the markets and just understand the real estate and the potential impact that their dollars are going to have in the market. And they've just made all these investments in the last two to three years. So some of those projects are still under construction. They have probably 15 to 20 projects under construction in addition to you know existing project investments. It's pretty significant. And you know, it's just I, I said to her, why don't you get the rest of your corporate friends and neighbors to come aboard and help? You know, but then she cautioned me and she said, you know, markets are volatile and real estate is a difficult investment. And not every corporation has the same mission and, you know, will to do what we're doing. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Absolutely. And I think especially in this region, too, I mean, we are so driven by government as you know, being the, the industry within our, in our, right. our region too. I know that, you know, a lot of our clients focus in the Bay Area and obviously in Silicon Valley and some of those areas, you know, you have Google, you have Facebook Meta that 
have created similar types of initiatives or built out, I'd say, more substantial development teams. You know, a big portion is housing when it comes to how they're building out their corporate campuses as well. And again, I think it's it's so important, you know, I'm not sure if you're a daily listener, but this week, especially, there was an episode about kind of the the market in San Francisco and especially how the Bay Area is so tech-driven and with COVID and all of these shifts, you know, people that were accessible to their jobs in downtown San Francisco are now commuting out to Marin County and Again, having easy access, especially with a lot of the Amazon projects that or, you know, not Amazon funded projects, they are, you know, POD, they're close to transit, they're expanding beyond just kind of the realm of National Landing, downtown DC, into Prince George's County and some other areas too. So again, it is beyond the bounds of, of just DC. Obviously the Amazon program is in, you know, Nashville, the Seattle area as well, where they have their corporate campuses. But, you know, it is a model that will hopefully be replicated. And I know on, on the private equity side, you know, a lot of these large institutional investors or private equity groups are creating their own initiatives again different and you know the the Amazon program focuses mostly on debt or entirely on debt but you know having these these large behemoths of organizations making it a priority to to invest in areas that have not just had that direct investment I think it's really important that you know especially the last couple of years that our industry is 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 trying to make communities better. And I think that it's a trend that will continue. There's just going to be more money that is funneled within community development, affordable housing, workforce housing too. I think that's really important to note as well that it doesn't necessarily need to be that traditional life tech. And so I hope it continues to to, to happen. I hope that people look at Catherine as a leader within this space and, and come up with other strategies just to continue this, this positive trend. Well, the, the key word you've, you've said just now is workforce housing in addition to the LIHTC, low-income housing tax credits. Workforce housing is, has been the biggest challenge. You know, the, the median household income of, let's say, 50000 to a hundred to 100000 you know, which is, you know, historically been a very strong income, but with the way housing costs have gotten grown so significantly, unless people have inherited money or had some access to capital some other way, they have to continue to rent at very high rents and the rents have gone up. So they're they're targeting, you know, more of that missing middle and the, uh, the workforce groups to live closer in instead of commuting 40 or 50 miles into downtown Washington or to their jobs in the inner suburbs. You know, so <laughs> you've seen housing growth in markets like Frederick, Maryland and Stafford and Spotsylvania County in Virginia, and, you know, out way out in Western Loudoun County and even West Virginia. And now with, with these funds, all these housing units will become more affordable and available for people to, to do. And so it's a, it's a strong initiative. So absolutely. Uh, absolutely. what did you think of Catherine's career trajectory, Allie, since you're a, employment recruiter what did you think from her her (laughs) her perspective yeah so i don't think that that john mentioned so i'm a director at bhr global on their real estate practice and so i've been in real estate recruiting the last close to five years at this point and i focused on affordable housing now i'm in you know a little bit more in private equity investment management, asset management type of space. But, you know, I have a, a broad grasp of the real estate industry. And 
you know, one, Catherine's background is so extremely impressive. I mean, just to, to have that interview, I think that I love hearing personal stories and how your experience, especially her growing up in the D.C. area, has influenced one, her career, but two, her, her goals and aspirations. You know, two of the main themes that I picked up on, you know, once she was at, you know, you know Spelman, which is obviously a wonderful HBCU, which, you know, provides such a great educational foundation when she interned at Capital One through a, a program and how a lot of real estate organizations are now using Project Project Reap. Some of these, these you know, these, you know, great mechanisms that they can make it more inclusive to to bring in underrepresented groups within organizations at a, you know the very beginning stages of their career as interns. I think it is really important. Obviously, in Catherine's experience, going to Capital One was not her long term goal. She was like, I did not like being a financial analyst, and decided to pivot into other spaces. You know, being going the legal path and going to law school. But again, I think having those programs, and she was in a program that was probably at the forefront is is so important. And I hope other leaders are recognizing that there are resources and opportunities that they can give to the younger generation to make sure that they can, you know, come into the industry and have the same opportunities. You know, the second is obviously going the legal path. You know, I think that she is is very interesting as a recruiter. And as I mentioned to John beforehand, you know, I have friends that are working for Similar large law firms, and there is a certain point where it's great. Some decide to go to the partner track, but there's others that have fallen in love with real estate, and that's the path that they they have taken, and realize they don't necessarily want to be a lawyer forever. And a lot of folks that go that that route get pigeonholed. Yes, they are opportunities to go into an in-house counsel. You know, sometimes there's other opportunities that pop up, but you know, especially after spending a decade plus in, you know working as an attorney, it can be really difficult to make those transitions, even though some of these people are the best, brightest individuals in the industry. And so Catherine really took it as, you know, an onus on herself to pivot. She obviously did a lot in the real estate private equity space internationally. I think she mentioned being in the Middle East and kind of seeing these glamorous investments and you know, realizing that her personal interest was really in community development and so getting involved and Ward Aid and the Historical Preservation Group and really making that her career and stepping away from, you know, patent dogs. I think it is something that is really interesting. And she she did it in a way that was showing her own personal passions and moving into a community development path, you know, working for Atlanta Housing, the, the Greater Washington Housing Partnership. And then to her current role in, in Amazon, moving back into you know, the private sector, I think it is quite extraordinary. And I think it just demonstrates that especially if you're you're feeling stuck or, you know, realize that you want to be in an area that's especially more mission driven, there are opportunities. Some people can find it as a career path. Other people can find it as a personal passion as well. Well, you know, it, it goes back to kind of her community development roots. Her mother was at HUD. And mm-hmm. the other thing is she belonged to this Jack and Jill group, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I looked it up and it's a fascinating community group that really got, you know, grassroots community development. And it's a large organization. I think they're in like 50 cities around the country. And I think there are thousands of members and mostly African-American women. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting group. And 
she, it, it really inspired her to overcome some of the issues. It was interesting when she was with her mother, who she said was a fair-skinned black woman at the grocery store, and she, at five years old, you know, she the, the clerk looked at her and said, so what do you want? You know, and she automatically, what's this? And it was that early she recognized that, you know, there is a, there is a prejudice out there. So I thought that was pretty interesting, but she just, she had friendships, that group, that kind of the cohesiveness of that. And she just developed a resilience to it, which I think was obviously evident in her career. I mean, to go to work at a, at a law firm like Pat and Boggs, you know, she was a minority there. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then in the real estate industry, as we well, there's very few women and people of color, although that's improving. But, you know, but she's she weathered right through it and is, works really well with everybody, it seems to me. So it's it's been great to, to see her develop. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially now as well, I mean, you think about the different industry groups that exist. Obviously, there's crew, there's WOI through ULI. There's all of these different areas that, you know, allow especially females within the industry to have that kind of inclusive space, especially in the D.C. area. I think one of the, the organizations that she mentioned, Wicked Women of Color and Community Development, I know that's a, a group within the area that has grown tremendously. And, you know, they're trying to replicate that model in other areas of the country, too. But, you know, there is a fair concentration of, you know, females, females, of in of underrepresented communities and to, to have a group or an, a space to network, to, you know, discuss, you know, challenges that are happening. I, I think it's so important, but also to make sure that there are the opportunities that you're not the only one. And so I think it is so important to in, invest in those areas and to, you know, if you're, you're looking at your organization, finding opportunities for those underrepresented people to, you know, move ahead. It, it, it is really great. Oh, Catherine, who's very, you can tell, super self-motivated, very creative. I mean, it does not, it's not a, an average person that can come up with the, the, the strategy. You know, I think that it's definitely a model, but there's a lot that we can all learn from, from someone like Catherine, but also for, for others that have that potential and how, how those people can, can grow within the, in the industry as well. Thank you for bringing up the creativity aspect. I think that was an an incredible part of what she was able to do. And, you know, her telling that story about coming in at, at Amazon and is director of community development, you know, the idea of a fund was never even considered until she sat down and said, you know, you have to put together a, a six page memo and you got to, you know, she wanted to make an impact right off the bat. And she'd mm-hmm. had this experience both at the DC government and at Patton Boggs, you know, raising capital for private equity investment deals in real estate, and then the public sector piece at you know, St. Elizabeth's and all that. So in her mind, she puts that together and she looks at the round of the company and they said, okay, we, we've got capital we want to invest. So how do we want to do that? And she sits down and writes a business plan and sells it to the highest level. You know, she gets Jeff Bezos and Andy Jassy to say, yep, I like it. Let's go. I mean, how exciting is that? 
you know, that's, that's quite awesome. exciting. And obviously, obviously she was quite ambitious. I think that she mentioned aiming for her $10 billion fund from the get go and now it's 2 billion, but now that they're deploying capital, I, I think that, you know, that, that next, that next goal is going to continue to be, be aggressive um, and hopefully only bring in more, more partners as well. But it's, well, it's, it's truly instrumental yeah. what she created. They went from idea to execution in such a rapid yeah. period of time and the volume of what they did. I mean, it's one thing to start a company and do some deals, but to do 40 deals in a year or more of those of that complexity. I mean, that's a, I mean, as I told her, and I've said it like three times, I've never heard anything quite like it in my career. I've never seen yeah, and especially like especially it. these affordable deals where some real estate projects take a long time. Some of these affordable oh, projects yes. even get off the ground can you know take five, six, seven years even to to take yeah. from idea to formulation. So it, it is quite impressive. Yep. So all you listeners out there that have trepidation about your career, just listen to her and take take some chances. Go after it. You know. You never know, but be thoughtful about it too. You know, think think through what you're what you're going to come about. But it's it's quite a story. Any other points you want to make, Alan? No, I mean, even just looking at the numbers, I, I can't believe we're sitting in 2023 right now, and it's been you know almost five years since Amazon has has made the announcement that you know they're they're investing in our region and you know, creating really a, a new community, you know, business district-wise and, and national landing, but also, you know, this, this investment to, you know, bringing in new jobs, new, new talent, and, and, and all of that, all the fun stuff that comes in with it. And so, again, I was so extremely impressed by, you know, Catherine's story, her vision, you know, what she's created. I know that there's even more to come. We've obviously sat you know, three of those five years in COVID, which I wouldn't say has slowed down the process tremendously considering, you know, there's, there's a, a lot that has happened over, over that period. But I'm excited to see as we're, you know, in this, you know, the next phase, what, what's going to happen as well. Well, it's interesting. They have a lot going on, as she did say, suggest. So the markets are getting tough and Amazon's mm-hmm. been laying people off recently. So the question is, you know, Will they continue this at this same pace? I don't know. And I think she's a little, I sensed a little uncertainty in her voice because they're, they're off. They right now are not accepting new deals because they have so much they've just digested. She's hopeful to be able to raise additional capital for first future investment. And I think, you know, the model is there and the need is still great. So I think mm-hmm. I'm optimistic that it will continue. So Absolutely. Allie, with that, thank you very much for joining me today on this. And listeners, thank you for joining us for this extraordinary conversation. And I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll talk in a couple of weeks.